This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Interesting week. We are going to end the week by giving you an opportunity to ask questions about anything you want. Now, the operative phrase in the sentence that I just said is ask questions. We don't want to hear you go on and on for five minutes stating your opinion, and then I have to uh, ask you five times, what's your question, what's your question? Have a question. Um, if you're not sure what a question is, usually they begin with phrases with words like "what," "who," "how," "why," "does," "do." Those are all the appropriate way to begin an interrogative question. Now uh, that means uh, we got an action-packed show for you. Doctor Sky is going to be here. A lot of other stuff as well. It is time for. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. Whatever you have questions about, motion pictures, uh, electoral politics, Atlantic City, gambling, the mob, uh, anything about my personal preferences, if you need advice about something, whatever the case may be, now's the time to ask it. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with um, Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, regarding uh, elections in New York State this year, like uh, congressional races and statewide races like for governor, which candidates do you think ran good campaigns, campaigns in the middle, or poor campaigns, and is it going to make a difference? And do you have any predictions that you want to share? You know, it's funny. Uh, one of the... Key uh, things that my colleagues and I all talk about in the hallways is almost exactly the kind of question that you just asked. Rita Cosby just asked me that. Dominic Carter just asked me yesterday. Sid Rosenberg just asked me the same thing, worded almost exactly as you just did. Um, In terms of – look, I think it's easy to see who's run the worst campaign. That's Kathy Hochul, right? Uh, Kathy Hochul – I agree. uh, Kathy Hochul is, um, in my view – she should get an award for for worst campaign. She is someone that had every possible advantage, partisan advantage, gender advantage. She didn't have any of Andrew Cuomo's uh, baggage when she came in. And yet she has managed to make a race that should never have been competitive, competitive. So I think she's run the worst race. And, you know, if you think about it, Really, I, Paul Begala was on Michael Smirkanish's show on CNN the other day, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and he said that it's not just Kathy Hochul, it's all Democrats in the country that should follow a very specific playbook on crime. And this is what he said that all Democrats should be focusing on. Here's the formula for Democrats. More cops, fewer guns. The far left doesn't want to hear more cops. The far right doesn't want to hear fewer guns. But 80% of Americans are right where the Democrats are. 
right? We need more cops, community policing, no tolerance at all for police abuse ever, and fewer guns. We don't need teenagers buying AR-15 so they can uh, walk into to high schools. I think Paul Begala is 100% right there. Had she been saying for the last eight months, instead of every other word out of her mouth being abortion, 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 if every other word out of her mouth was more cops and fewer guns, I think that's a winning message in terms of crime. She could have said, not only am I uh, proposing money in my executive budget to hire more police officers in every municipality in the state, but I'm going to continue my campaign to crack down on, uh, you know, on assault weapons and things of that. Instead, she's been nowhere. Her whole strategy has been a Rose Garden strategy, which works when people know who you are. But uh, Kathy Hochul is nowhere on any issue. She seems to stick her finger into the air and go whichever way the wind blows. So um, I I think she's run a very poor race. In terms of who's run a good race— I would say that um, even though I don't see him winning on Tuesday, I would say in New York, uh, Joe Pinion has run a uh, a very good race. I think in Pennsylvania, the Democratic candidate for governor there, uh, Shapiro, has run a very good race. I think in Arizona, the uh, Republican candidate for uh, governor there, Carrie Blake, has Carrie Lake, has run a an incredibly strong race, and uh, that's a blue state. Um, in terms of Georgia, Georgia is just such an anomaly because of all the um, of all the uh, hullabaloo surrounding Herschel Walker. So I'm not going to give anybody any awards there. Uh, my prediction is, and as I just said to Rita Cosby, I do think the Republicans are going to take back both houses of Congress. I think they ultimately win the Senate with about 52 seats. I think uh, Herschel Walker does end up winning in Georgia, uh, but I think that's probably after a runoff. There's a libertarian there, so I don't see either of those candidates getting uh, 50% of the vote. And then uh, I see that 52nd seat going in the Republican column after the runoff. As far as New York goes, I think Zeldin has made this race much closer than I ever expected. And as I said to Rita, I'm usually wrong, but uh, I don't think Zeldin wins, but I think it's going to be very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any anything you want to add there, Chris? Uh, I I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly on the governor's race, and uh, I think in District 19, I know Andrew Giuliani a couple times has mentioned he thought that might be a bellwether. You know, the old 19 where Pat Ryan beat Molinaro, and then the new 19 where it's Josh Riley versus Molinaro. I don't think that it, it it could be a bellwether in a different way, and I'll tell you why. The part of that district that I live in. Is heavily populated with uh, New York City, Long Island, Connecticut transplants that are very progressive, and that's the same for Columbia County also. And then where Josh Riley lives in Tompkins County, it's right. New York that's heavily populated with Democrats. I think Josh Riley pulls out a very close election. His campaign actually uh, has been very good the last month. Yeah. I think Pat I, Ryan yeah. wins District 18. Right. I, I, I haven't Wall, followed. I think Waller upsets Maloney. Yeah, I, I haven't followed 7. those races uh, that closely, uh, Chris, so you're better informed than I have. The other, uh, and I don't know that he's going to win on Tuesday, but the person that I think has run a very good campaign is Tim Ryan in Ohio. I think the messaging, and again, I don't know that he's going to win, but the messaging that Ryan has been using in Ohio is something that the Democrats could learn from all over the country. And if he does win in Ohio, it's not because of any 
uh, any break in the red wave. It's solely due to the messaging of the Tim Ryan campaign. I think he's run a very good campaign. 800-848-9222. Barry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Barry. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm, I'm, I got a little bit of a cold, but I'm doing okay. Okay, Frank. Uh, since the uh, Kyrie Irving thing came up, I would just like to find out your opinion of one of the most egregious anti-Semitic acts in my lifetime, which occurred on the radio after 9-11. With the WFAN guys, what's your take on that? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I know what you're talking about. Right after 9-11, the dust hadn't even settled. And Mike Francesa and Chris Russo were on the radio blaming Israel, saying Jews weren't loyal to America. And it went on and on and on. There was an investigation. They said the tapes were missing. I find it hard to believe that you don't know any of this. It's your industry. Yeah, I, I do, too, actually, especially if it's uh, as you characterize it. Well, I don't um, if that's uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this now and people have written about this. I um, I don't know. I, I'd like to hear it. But if it's what you characterize it as, then I think that's certainly horribly anti-Semitic and not the kind of thing that anybody should ever say. I'm going to look into it and see if I can get uh, if not a what tape of it. A transcript. One other thing, Frank, yep. while you're looking into it, look at the Radio Broadcasting Hall of Fame where they inducted these two guys into the race, in, not the bit, but the Radio Hall of Fame. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, Barry. I'm going to, um, one, I'm going to go back and listen to uh, what you're referring to there. Uh, two, I think... Um, you know, I, I'm not going to just make judgments about what was said based on your characterization. I'm going to try and listen to it myself. And three, as I've said before, maybe because I'm in this position, um, all of us that are on the radio say foolish things. We all say dumb things. And I don't think it's fair to characterize someone's career, especially if they've been on the air 10, 20, 30, 40 years, by the worst thing they've ever said. I said that with Bob Grant. I've said that with Pat Buchanan. I've said that with uh, Al Sharpton. I've said that with uh, any number of folks. And I, I would like that same thing for myself, Curtis Lewa. Uh, so, uh, but I will look into that. That is interesting. Are you hip to this whole situation at all? No, I never heard about it either. But he said, like, the tapes were missing. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 but the it thing says is, that online. Yeah, but that makes no sense because it was, if it was on the radio, anybody can record it. So they, there can't be missing tapes. You can't tell me that somebody somewhere yeah. didn't record well, yeah, Mike and the Mad that Dog. Is, it is interesting. I'm going to look into that. Um, and, you know, look, I certainly don't think Mike Francesa is anti-Semitic. He, he's worked with a lot of Jewish folks over the years, and I've never heard him any stories about him treating Jewish folks poorly. But I'm going to look into that. I'm actually, to that fellow's point, I'm surprised I don't know about this either. This is exactly the kind of thing that I should know about. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. I got a two set question. The first one is, who would you say is not the luckiest but the happiest person living right now? And if you would have a choice of being a person that has uh, not not a, a, an emotionally bad life during the daytime, but sleeps for twelve hours a night and has great dreams, or you could be a person that has a, a decent life but has terrible dreams at night, who would you rather be? 
Well, I mean, I guess, you know, decent life is so subjective, right? Uh, but, um, you know, so I'd want a little more specificity of what you meant by decent life. But I think I'd rather have uh, average the... life, not, nothing special. But ha- but the guy that has a, has a pretty hard life during the daytime has awesome dreams. And that's, you know, yeah. half of the day because he's sleeping 12 hours. Yeah, I would take the decent life in your waking hours as far as the happiest person on earth. Um I feel like I'm pretty happy, uh, but uh, I, I'm always I'm always really inspired by Jeffrey Gurian whenever he's on the radio. I think he might be the happiest person that I know. It might be him. And you think you think you don't think that it, uh, he could just be covering it up? It's just how he sounds. You, yeah. I, again, I can only uh, tell you. I can only tell you. Uh, my interactions with him and my observations, but oh, you, you, had, know, you can't you really you can't really um, judge what's in someone's heart, what's in someone's mind. So based on what I can tell, I think he strikes me as pretty happy. But uh, otherwise, it's me. I'm right. very happy. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. You know, uh, over the months, you uh, you occasionally break into a pretty neat impression or an imitation of somebody. I mean, you've done a little bit of Bob Grant and Joe Franklin and Trump and, and even E. Frank. I think you've done some imitations along the way. So what do you think might be your best imitation? And, and uh, if maybe you, if you are prompted to kind of go into it. Oh, you know, it, it's, it depends, Igor. You know, the, 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 there's a few that I um, do well or used to do well. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold off on any of them today just because my voice is a little hoarse, but I'm happy to give you an imitation voucher for the imitation of your choice come Monday. But, um, you know, I think my Andrew Cuomo is pretty good. Uh, I've heard very good things about my Joe Franklin. Uh, a lot of people enjoy my Bob Grant, if not for its accuracy, certainly for the comedic overtones that come with it. Um, back in the day when Joe Scarborough was on the radio, I used to do a lot of Joe Scarborough impersonations. I haven't done it in years, so I think I'm a little out of practice when it comes to uh, Joe Scarborough. But um, I would say those are those are the ones that most immediately come to mind. You know, I stopped doing Trump. A couple of years ago, actually, because everyone was doing Trump. And to me, it's no fun to do the impersonations that everybody else does, because I'm not going to do them as well as a Brian Whitman or a Jay Diamond or, uh, you know, a John D. Domenico or any of the great impersonators out there. I like to do the impersonations that nobody does, a guy like uh, a Joe Franklin or someone like that. Thank you, though, Igor. Uh, write to me on Monday. Let me know who you want uh who you'd like me to try and do. All right, let me say hello to uh, Thomas in Baltimore, in WCBM land. Hello, Thomas. How you doing, Frank? I'm hanging in there. Thanks, Thomas. Look, I want to ask you a question. Don't you think Donald Trump would be more effective as Speaker of the House than the President? No, uh, I, I don't. Well, I don't know if you... I, I mean, look, all uh, there's a theory about Donald Trump that has him ascending to the presidency by being uh, Speaker of the House. I don't get, let, give that any credence, but um, I think if you're talking about someone that's actually going to do the job, I think Trump is a born executive. He, his whole life, pretty much, has been telling people what to do and running things, which is what you want in an executive. It, as a Speaker of the House, you're you're almost it's a very difficult job and a very unsatisfying job to someone like Trump. I also don't think Trump 
um, has as much of an understanding of the ins and outs of legislative power as he does how executive power works. For instance, yesterday he put out a comment, a statement saying that Mitch McConnell should be impeached when there's no procedure to impeach Mitch McConnell. So I, I think that a lot of Trump's adversaries, both within his own party and in the other party, they could take advantage of that lack of institutional knowledge. And I don't think he'd enjoy the job um, much at all. I think Trump is a born head of something, head of a company, head of a state, uh, head of uh, he likes to run things and build things. And that's what he's good at. I, I don't think Speaker of the House is for him personally. 800-848-9222. We will continue with your questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we are giving you an opportunity to ask questions about anything you like at 800-848-9222. As we do for our final show, the first hour of our final show every week. And uh, that means it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. 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 <laughs> And we do not have a prize to give away. I am working on that. Uh, Matt Blaze and Kenneth were in the meeting last week where I fought to get the prizes back, and I am working on that. Uh, the only prize we can give you is we, we can give you an opportunity to ask another question. Now, we do have another guest at uh, in the second hour. Dr. Sky is going to be here. So we're going to be talking space for the second hour of the program. So it would have to be for the third hour of the program that you get your credit. But uh, it, sometimes it's still just interesting to answer interesting questions and to ask interesting questions. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, um, I heard you mention your fascination with time travel yesterday. Well, time and, travel uh, movies pertains... specifically, but yeah. Okay. Okay, so this pertains to that. If you were given the opportunity to uh, get into a time machine and change something that happened during your lifetime, it has to be during your lifetime, what would it be? And the only limitation is that whatever event you want to change, you have to show up two hours before it happens in order to do anything. Ooh, that's a really good question. And that was actually one of the questions that um, was a big theme in the finale of Better Call Saul this year. Um, Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Um, Well, look, I think it would be, I think the obvious answer is uh, September 11th uh, because of all the lives that could have been saved, not only preventing the terrorist attack, but preventing the uh, wars that, uh, or at least one of the wars that emerged after that. I know on Family Guy, they do, they do this. One of the characters goes back in time and prevents September 11th, and then it's a much worse uh, situation. I'd be willing to risk that uh, because, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine things being much worse than September 11th and its aftermath. So that's my pick. 
Um, Frank, you know, I was thinking the same thing, but would would you be able to change anything in two hours? Like if you woke up and it was two hours before the first hijacker got on the plane, do you think anyone would believe you? It's a good question, right? And that, um, you know, that happens a lot. There was an episode of The Twilight Zone like that. I, I, don't, I know you used to watch The Twilight Zone also, but a guy keeps yeah. going to all these different points in history. Um, he wants to try and kill Hitler. He wants to prevent the Lincoln assassination, a couple other things, and he, ke- and he keeps struggling. And I think the Time Tunnel did some episodes like that as well. But um, at, the, at the very least, I think maybe I could uh, get the building evacuated more quickly, maybe call in a bomb scare, my, a bomb threat myself to facilitate the, um, you know, the evacuation of people. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think there'd be something that I could do. What it was, I don't know. But that's my pick. That's what I'd like to try to change. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. During the week, you had a segment about uh, the boss uh, going out and dating uh, their employees. Uh, I was wondering, now, I know you're straight, uh, but if if you swung both ways and you had a choice, not for consummation, but just to go out and date, who do you think you would pick? Do you think it would be Matt, Alex, or would you go off the grid and maybe try to grab Avery? Uh, no, it would not be Avery. Let, let me rule him out. I Let me think. Um, well, so are you talking about a platonic situation or somebody that I would, uh, that I would, uh, I would be a romantic partner to in the scenario you're talking well, about? I, I wouldn't go as far as the consummation, but uh, it could be ro- a romantic thing uh, without going all the way. So am I limited to just the three fellows that work on this show? Well, I, I know, but your employees, I mean, uh, those are the two that come to mind who right. were working under you. Yeah, I don't know. It would not be um, it would not be Matt Place. I'll tell you because he's got that beard, and I don't. The beard is a big uh, turnoff to me. It might be it might be Kenneth, not because he's handsome. Well, sort of because he is handsome. Because he's very slender. He's very slender, and he he and Alex Barnard has the beard also, which is not really my thing, right? So I couldn't picture myself rubbing up against uh, his face with the beard. Um, Kenneth is very slender and, you know, maybe after a few and with the right lighting, I could see him in a feminine light, perhaps. Also, you got to keep in mind that because he is objectively handsome, not according to me, but according to other people, maybe we'd have an easier time picking up girls if that's the activity that we chose on, uh, on a given date. Although, although, you know, Matt and Alex are both, uh, are both fine looking fellas as well, but is a romantic partner. Uh, the beard is a is, is a turnoff for me. Kenny, we need to have a serious talk. <laughs> 800-848-9222. Dylan is on Ontario. Hello, Dylan. Hey, Frank. How's it going, dude? It's going. That's good. I got I got two questions for you. First question is, have you ever watched the Ren and Stimpy show? I don't think I've ever seen a full episode, no. Okay. It's a good show. I recommend you check it out. It's on Paramount Plus. Yeah, I, I mean the voices I always found a little bit annoying, but maybe for for you know maybe I will check it out one of these days. What was your other one? All right. The second question is, um, do you check your messenger? Uh, Facebook Messenger. 
Yeah. Uh, when I remember to, which is not that often, I uh, I am much more likely to check uh, email. I check every email. Uh, direct messages on Twitter, I generally check. And for some reason, Facebook Messenger, I find a little clunky. Uh, and there are all sorts of messages in there that I don't that I don't end up seeing. And you know what I've noticed about Facebook Messenger? For some reason, um, people end up getting automated responses back from from me or from themselves and then they, or they send an automated message and they don't realize that it's coming from them so then they answer their own questions so i i shy away from uh from facebook messenger honestly I, i'm not uh i'm not crazy about it the best way to reach me is via email and uh, then secondarily via twitter or via sms text message at 8168 moreno that's 8168 Morano, let me say hello to Larry on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank Simple, how do you do it? Oh, please. You live, you live paycheck to paycheck. You then go cash in bottles and cans. And maybe hours later, you're in Atlantic City buying drinks for the house. What's the secret? Well, what is the secret? Where's the money coming from? Well, there's a lot of money in those bottles and cans. I wouldn't say I li- live um, quite paycheck to paycheck, but um, yeah, I guess I do. Uh, but uh, I don't know. You, I, I get money, pay my bills, and then spend whatever's left. That's uh, simple as that. And uh, you know, part of that is allocated for for savings. You know, uh, so you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know how to answer that question. Eight hundred eight four eight. Nine two 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 open lines. If you want to jump on board, let me say hello to uh, Joe in Poughkeepsie. Hello, Joe. Hi. I just wanted to ask you uh, if you thought the reason Biden was mentioning the three hundred uh, uh, election deniers possibly getting elected to Congress is because uh, the researchers for the two thousand mules or Mark Zuckerberg himself might be uh, subpoenaed to testify in front of Congress. Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think um, it's because the abortion issue has fallen flat. And uh, I think uh, they're trying to use anything in the because it's interesting. The thing that is likely to hand the Republicans control of the Congress, it's not Republicans winning in red districts. It's Republicans winning in districts that Biden won. So right now you're about to see a situation where at least a dozen, probably dozens, of Republican candidates are about to get elected in districts that Joe Biden won by, in some cases, 10 points. So I think Biden and whoever does his polling is seeing these numbers and saying, wait a minute, these are districts where they really don't like Donald Trump, and yet we're about to lose it. Clearly, the abortion issue is not resonating. It's not trumping inflation. It's not trumping crime. It's not trumping border security. And they're betting that uh, the people in that district are so turned off by Donald Trump and his supporters that that uh, reminder about election denialism they're hoping has a political impact. But I don't think it's what you suggest. I think that's uh, way too substantive. I think at this point... Anything any politician says, it's all about the politics. That's it. One, two, three, four open lines if you want to comment. Not comment. If you have a question, 800-848-9222. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Now, where they 
the great Steve Martin singing about King Tut. You know what happened today? 100 years ago. Uh, this is King Tut Day. This is a holiday celebrating the date of discovery of the Egyptian king Tutankhamun. 100 years ago, um, Carter, the archaeologist Carter, I think, I think Dr. Carter, discovered the steps leading to King Tut's tomb. And um, that was it. The rest is history. And then we got this great song out of it, right? 800-848-9222. We are answering your questions on any subject. One open line. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Ask Frank Anything. Let me say hello to Joel in Manhattan. Hello, Joel. Hi, Frank. Uh, good to hear you. I had two questions. One, what is the most intelligent question anybody's ever asked you? And number two, what's the most brain-dead question anybody's ever asked you? Um, well, the I would say, I got it, like, two weeks ago, somebody was asking, or maybe three weeks ago, somebody was asking about uh, uh, Superman ejaculating. That's the most brain-dead question that, any, that anybody's ever asked. That's easy. As far as the most intelligent question, there's always a lot of intelligent questions. They um, Almost every question that begins with why is an interesting one, especially if it's something that I actually know something about, uh, because it usually leads to greater discussion. The one that comes to mind is about a year ago, because... People know that I'm familiar with the case. Uh, someone asked me about um, why the theory was that um, Curtis Lewa was kidnapped and assaulted on the orders of John Gotti Jr. And I thought it was such an interesting question because Curtis spends so much time talking about his shooting. There's been so much in the press about his shooting. But over the last 30 years since it happened, I think most of the people in our audience really didn't have an understanding of why that occurred and how it occurred. And um, it, that I thought that that took an assumption that a lot of people had and yet none of them knew about. And the feedback that I got from that question and my response was was really interesting. But the, your question just now was a good one as well, Joel. Thank you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Hello, Alex. Well, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question is pretty simple. Um, I think quite some time ago, uh, Lydia Kuranage lost her talk show, and you had mentioned that there was a possibility she might get one again. And I was wondering, is that still a possibility, and will will she be hosting a talk show sometime perhaps in the near future? You know, it's a good question. I honestly have no idea. They don't generally consult me about programming questions or programming thoughts. Uh, They don't usually ask my opinion about who should have talk shows and who uh, should not. Usually I find out what's going on in terms of programming the day after everybody else does. So uh, I would assume so, but, uh, you know, Lydia's a great talent. I know she's on Newsmax now, so it wouldn't surprise me if um, she did have... Another opportunity to do a talk show. I mean, I think her dance card might be pretty full. She is uh, on the morning show uh, just about every day, and then she's on with John Katsimatidis just about every day. I'm not sure how much more you can add to your plan. And she fills in for a whole bunch of people. So, um, But I don't know. I'm not trying to deny her that opportunity. She had a very popular 
talk show. 800-848-9222. Adrian is in Manhattan. Hello, Adrian. Yeah, uh, thank you. Great show. Thank you. Here's, let me get right to the point. Is Do you know, is a vasectomy reversible? Is it expensive? And if it isn't expensive, why aren't more men getting it? Because as far as I'm concerned, sex should be had four times a day, and you don't even have to go to a gym no more. Well, um, you know, as far I, I believe a vasectomy is reversible generally, but I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes there are some complications in doing that. Look, it's still a surgery, so I think um, I think that's why that's the case, right? I mean, you could also do the same thing just by using proper protection. So, you know, I don't think you need to go to the difficulty of a, a, a surgical procedure. I don't know about the um, uh, the cost. That's something I don't know about. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Christina in New Jersey. Hello, Christina. Hi, Frank. Hi. Frank, why Americans call black people African-Americans? Well, if you notice, I don't. And I know a lot of black people who don't do that. Um, You know, that started in the 1990s. Uh, That was very much a Jesse Jackson thing. And I understand kind of the movement away from the words that were used to describe uh, black people at that point. Um, You know, the, the word Negro had become something of a pejorative. The word colored had become something of a pejorative. And uh, a lot of folks were looking for something else that um, was seen as less um, alien. Um, But I find it inaccurate. Uh, One, I don't like hyphenated Americanism in general. I don't like Italian-American or German-American or anything like that, even though people use those terms all the time, too. But it's also um, inaccurate because you can be black and be from Jamaica. You can also look, and if you want to look at who is actually an African American, Elon Musk is an African American. He's from South Africa. So, um, are we really going to use um, the same word to describe Elon Musk, who's whiter than I am, as you would somebody who has been born in this country, whose parents, grandparents, and great grandparents were born here and happens to be black? It's silly. I use the term black, but I'm a big believer, Christina, in that people should be called. Whatever they want to be called. If somebody gets their yayas up by being called Italian American or African American, more power to them. It's not a word that I use. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, uh, let's see, Bob is in Baltimore at WCBM. Hello, Bob. Yeah, hi, Frank. Second WCBM caller of the night. Yeah, welcome. And uh, my question is, do you think that Joe Biden was blackmailed. The reason that I ask that is he's someone who in his Senate tenure and in the election was supposed to be, he was a moderate as a a senator, I take it, with some exceptions. But then in the campaign for president, he was going to be a uniter, and he completely reversed that. And with his entanglement with his son in, in foreign matters, Frank, I think what might have happened is once he got elected or won the election, people might have said, hey, uh, Joe, you know, we ha- we know you have these things in your background. Uh, maybe it would be best if you took on the radical agenda and then you'll be OK. Yeah. Um, the answer to your question, Bob, is no, I don't think he was uh, he was blackmailed. I think Biden, in some respects, um, ended up having to do the same thing that Trump had to do. Now, Biden 
was a fairly moderate guy as a senator, but I don't think he was moderate because he had really core beliefs. I think he's moderate because that's what you had to do to stay in power and to make deals in the U.S. Senate. Um, Biden, when he got elected with a Democratic majority, it became very clear that the only way that he was going to be able to get anything done was to go chart a hard left path. And he has. Um, They got a Supreme Court justice approved. They got um, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. They got the the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Um, you know, some uh, the veterans health care bill, a bunch of other things. Uh, Most of it is far left wing with Trump. Trump was never a partisan Republican. If you look at Trump's campaign contributions, he gave almost as much to Democrats until just before he ran for president as he did to Republicans. If you look at the things that Trump said in his political life, a lot of them were very conventional liberal things, including um, soaking the rich to pay off the debt, including being uh, pro-choice, including favoring single-payer health care. But the, the same thing happened with Trump that happened with Biden, which is it was very clear to Trump that the Democrats had no interest in working with him. It was very clear to Biden that the Republicans had no interest, almost no interest in working with him. So the only way you're going to get any of your agenda enacted is by going with the folks that are willing to work with you. So McConnell and Paul Ryan were willing to go with him on all the issues that Trump found important, namely trade. Um, and, uh, you know, a few others. And they wanted their agenda passed as part of that. With Biden, it's the same thing. Same thing. So I don't think he was blackmailed. I think the leftward shift in uh, Biden's approach is due to political pragmatism, just as I think the rightward shift in Trump's approach is uh, due to the same factor. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Lake George. Uh, I like Frank Gamaro. I'm just uh, playing a little poker with friends up here in Long Island. Um, And Frank, I'm still in Kent. Um, You know, I played some ball, a lot of ball back in the day. Uh, When I mentioned on your show, high school ball against Tony Gallo, we beat him late in the game, got drafted by the Expos, his son, Joey Gallo. Now, Frank, uh, with your fascination with the Italian businessmen and everything, uh, does your family, you don't have to mention name, does your family have any relationship with any one of the uh, Italian businessmen? No, you talk like, has anybody in my family been mobbed up or anything like that? Well, they, uh, do they have uh, friends who, who are mobbed up? Or relatives who are mobbed up. No, I mean, no, uh, not not at any significant level. I'll say that my uh, my uncle Jimmy, right. who I was very close to, uh, and he he had been an elevator operator, but his primary occupation was he was a he was a bookie and a very tough bookie at times. But that right. was long before uh, I knew him. Um, but he did have a reputation. He passed away, but he did have a reputation um, to that effect. Uh, even that long after he stopped being on the right. streets. And my uncle Marco, who uh, was not a blood relative, but he was married to my uncle Jenny, uh, my aunt Jenny. Uh, he he had some sort of he was uh, he mostly was an ice delivery guy, but uh, right. he was he was at times sort of uh, hired muscle for some um, you know some gangster types. But I never really knew him, so I wouldn't say in any significant way. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Alfredo is in Newark. Alfredo, I love your fettuccine. 
Yes, Alfred. Yes, Frank, how are you? Good. Uh, Frank, uh, why there are too many socialists in this country when uh, this country is supposed to be more towards Republicans, more towards, uh, you know, to the right? And why there are too many left leftists? Why? Alfredo, I'm not sure I get the question. The question is, why are there too many socialists or why aren't there? No, why, why are? Why are there? Uh, look, there are socialists everywhere, right? I mean, the um, the new president of Brazil just replaced one of the most hardline uh, right-wing populists ever, and he's a hard leftist. I would characterize him as a socialist. There are socialists everywhere. It's a political movement that um, has taken root everywhere. So I don't know why our country should be any exception. 800-848-9222. Um, Brian is in Michigan. Hello, Brian. Hey, Frank, um, a two-parter question. Um, you know, you're, you're syndicated now to about uh, seven stations. And, you know, do you see yourself being syndicated uh, to a bunch of stations uh, going forward, like across the whole country and getting on bigger, uh, bigger radio stations? And where do you see the talk radio industry going in the next 10 years? Well, it's a great question, right? Um and the second question is uh, one that I can only guess at, right? And I've been trying to guess at it for years. I really think if you look at what John Katzmatidis has done with WABC in New York, and to some extent what WCBM has done in Baltimore, they have sort of created a new paradigm um, in terms of how talk radio stations can be successful, independent from these corporate uh, behemoths like Cumulus and iHeart uh, who have done more to ruin talk radio than anybody. So I think I'm very bullish on the future of talk radio because of what these independent stations have done. They've demonstrated for all the world to see that, one, if you're willing to put quality content on and invest in quality content, people are going to listen to it. And two, uh, they've shown that, um, you know, that there's still an audience for it. And in the era where you can listen wherever you want, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, really, through streaming audio, really, for the first time in history, the audience is without borders. The audience is limitless. And as far as uh, more stations go, I uh, I don't know. I think so. I, I'm, I'm always hearing from the syndication folks that they're um, close to more and more stations. I was talking with, um, with, with those guys yesterday. Yesterday, they were telling us about a station that's uh, signing on board. So I have no idea. The truth is, Brian, as long as I uh, get to be on um, the radio anywhere, I consider myself a pretty lucky guy. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, Gene at the shore. Hello, Gene. Franco, how you been? I'm hanging in there, Gene. Thanks. Good. Hey, uh, you know, I... I call the show. I'm a big fan of the show, and I, uh, I'm i on the group. And uh, I just want you to know, I live down the shore here, but I'm a Staten Island boy, born and raised. Wonderful. Love it. So here's my question. What I want to change the pace a little bit. What is your favorite childhood memory, 0 to 12? 0 to 12. Um, hmm. It's a good question. I'd like to I'd like to give that some thought. I'll tell you the one that immediately comes to mind is um, I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and my father was um, a health insurance executive and they had some business with uh, Chemical Bank at the time. And um, there was this big uh, event at the Ostega 
hotel uh, that we were invited to, and there were all these old Hall of Famers. And even at 10 years old, uh, I was much more into baseball when I was 10 than I am now. I was obsessed with baseball when I was 10. And I got to go to this event with all these Hall of Famers, and I got to meet a lot of incredible ball players. Gene Hernansky, who played for the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, Art Shamsky, Bob Feller, uh, Bobby Thompson, um, Ralph Branca, um, and uh, Ro- Robin Roberts, a whole bunch of others. And um, it was really a treat. Is uh, They had a bus take us from this reception to um, to the the Hall of Fame Museum. And Bob Feller, one of the most legendary left-handed pitchers in history, won over 300 games. He came over to me, and I had met him briefly at the reception, and I asked for his autograph. Uh, Phil Rizzuto was there as well, a bunch of other folks. He came over to me um, because he, I guess, got a kick out of the fact that this young guy was such a big fan of his. And uh, he came over to me and said, Frank, um, if it's okay with your dad, I was there with my dad, maybe I could take you and show you around the World War II exhibit. And they had this World War II exhibit at the, um, at the museum in, uh, in Cooperstown. And I, kind of, I got a, a personal tour of it from Bob Feller. And it was, the, uh, it was just incredibly rewarding and uh, really, really magical. I never forgot that. And then um, he really w- was just talking to me. And he went to so much length um, explaining his experiences in World War II, uh, his experiences as a ball player. And then a lot of the other ball players, uh, Art Shamsky and Ralph Branca, they really got into listening to Bob Feller tell the stories to me. And then they started participating in the stories as well. So I got a lot of great memories from childhood. But that's the one that most uh, immediately comes to mind, I think. Great memory. Thank you. Thanks, Gene. Hey, uh, two open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. John in Brooklyn has been patiently holding. Hello, John. Okay. Uh, one question and two quick comments. First, before I ask the question, uh, like you, I met Bob Feller, and I had a very pleasant conversation. One of my college classmates is a cousin of his. So, so I enjoyed talking to him. This so you was could tell you could tell John years ago doesn't mention and, Brown uh, University anymore. I hope because, you bring Alan Tallon because Matt and back, I make even fun. I didn't finish hearing all of the interview. He's one of your best analysts, and I think you should have him on the program more often. Now, here's my question: Under what criteria do you decide who is a group expert on the Facebook group? You know, I don't know, honestly. It, one of those things happened uh, in the Facebook group, and they started uh, – it started asking me the option, do you want to make so-and-so a group expert? And um, and I would just click – I pretty much just clicked yes. And then a couple of people complained that they weren't group experts, and uh, I uh, I made them group experts as well. The, t- the, the label – I want to make very clear. The label of group expert in the Facebook group – is totally 100% and completely meaningless. It means nothing. These people aren't in ac- experts in anything, as far as I'm concerned. And you know what? Neither am I. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm here on the radio. So there is no significance whatsoever to that term group expert. I don't know where it came from. It, it, it just popped up. Uh, when I logged on to Facebook, I went to look in the group. It said, oh, do you want to make so-and-so a group expert? I just clicked yes. And then a couple of other times, click yes. Now they stopped asking me, so I don't know. But uh, make no mistake, there are there are no. I I, I can't vouch for the expertise of anybody in that group. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. It's a great group, though. If you want to join Morano Radio uh, fans and haters, that's M O R A N O Radio fans and haters. 
CJ is in New Jersey. Hello, CJ. Okay, uh, just two questions. Should the United States of America exist at all? Yes. As a sovereign nation or an open border country? And should citizenship be eliminated like the Democrats want? Uh, No, no. I think uh, the United States has been the greatest guarantor of freedom, um, uh, uh, you know, around the world and throughout the last 200 years of history. And I think it's a great thing. And uh, no, I don't think it should be eliminated. I'd love to see the United States continue as a uh, as a sovereign country. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Thank you for taking a call, Frank. Very quickly. I want to ask you, do you think that more on that uh, imbecile uh, Kyrie Irving should continue to play with the Nets and continue to exist in the NBA? I know your co-worker, Sid Rosenberg, has spoken quite eloquently on that topic. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are, given the anti-Semitic wild. I have a lot of thoughts on it. I'm going to get into this with Debbie Schlussel a little bit in our final hour. But um, for starters... You know, when I watch someone play uh, a sport, right, I really don't care much what their views are on anything. That's one of the reasons. I'm not a basketball fan anyway, but let's say I'm a baseball fan. I'm not following Pete Alonzo, for instance, on Twitter. Pete Alonzo could be tweeting the craziest stuff in the world. I'm just interested in how well he plays basketball. Now, that being said, the Nets are a private business, and if people choose to stop watching their games and stop advertising on the telecasts and the radio broadcasts because of their association with Kyrie Irving, then that's a business decision that they have to make. That being said, I think that there will be some team, as long as Irving is still able to play as well as he is, that will uh, that will pick Irving up. I, I said, and we're going to get into um, planetary stuff with Dr. Sky in just a minute, but I said on Twitter just uh, yesterday, I don't know why people are shocked that someone who thought the earth was flat a few years ago is somehow unenlightened on the issue of uh, interfaith relations. You know, I I don't want to make an overly broad generalization, but, you know, the reason Kyrie Irving is so good at basketball is because he spent his whole life playing basketball. He's not spending his whole life reading He's not exactly, you know, hitting the books and studying. I mean, I hate to put it this way, but he's a buffoon. He has developed a skill that is in part due to genetics and in part due to practice. And I'm not sure why anybody gives any credibility to what he says about anything, quite frankly. All right. um, I think we're probably out of time. Matt Blaze, do you have a uh, selection for best question? I would say uh, David in the Bronx with the time David travel. David in the Bronx with time travel. All right. David, uh, if you want to call back in one hour, you've won the right to ask another question. Congratulations. Otherwise, just enjoy that giant case of satisfaction that Kenneth is going to send you. And uh, if you want to ask a question about space, you're in for a treat. 800-848-9222. Dr. Sky is here, and there's a lot worth looking at. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I'm a great lover of science fiction films, and I have talked before about my fondness for the film Forbidden Planet. I don't know if you've ever seen Forbidden Planet. It's from the 50s. Great picture. Still holds up today. There's, it's great drama. It's great science fiction. The special effects for its time were quite good. And uh, great performance by Leslie Nielsen in a serious role. And great performance by Walter Pidgeon as well. But I haven't seen the film in years. But there's one part of the film where all the guys that uh, are the crew of this spaceship go down to this planet to go to this machine and get your IQ tested. And the guy that's a doctor or something, he gets his IQ tested and it's just through the roof, through the roof. And then the captain of the starship gets his IQ tested, and it's okay. It's significantly less than the doctor. And the guy that's administering these IQ tests says something like, ah, well, that's okay, he's the captain. He just needs a nice, loud, booming voice. He doesn't need to be that smart. The the thing that I felt that I've always made up for, with any lack of knowledge or insight or humor on my part, is I think I have a very melodious voice. I think I have a voice that can be soothing. I think I have a voice under normal circumstances, which you want to fall asleep to or wake up to, right? However, I hear the way that I sound with a cold. I hear the nasality in my voice, and I'm driving myself crazy listening to myself. Now, if that's how I'm making myself feel, I can only imagine what I'm doing to you. What does that mean? That means I have a special treat for you. I have searched far and wide for the man with the best voice in all of radio. And he also happens to be pretty intelligent. And that is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, who is going to stay with us for the hour. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy, space, weather, anything that happens in the sky. And he's also a podcaster uh, for WABCRadio.com and a brand new official contributor to WABC in New York. Steve, it is great to talk with you, and it's, uh, it's even better to call you a colleague finally. Well, Frank, good morning, and thank you so much for the kind comments. And to all the listeners out there, we say good morning. Just a privilege and honor, uh, you know, obviously with the radio station that I grew up as a person living in New York and New Jersey, as so many others. And just a little tribute, if you don't mind, a good friend of mine, his name is Tony Recasino. He just sadly passed away. He's my age, 66, and both of us lived in, in Hackensack, New Jersey. And what did we do, Frank? We'd run down to the WABC antenna when we could get down that way in Lodi, New Jersey, and we'd actually fish in the little swamps down there. So, Tony, if you're listening to us in the afterlife, I just wanted to pass that on, Frank, because it's an honor to be part of this radio station. Who would figure that one day I'd be staring there looking at the antenna and we're doing this? That's wild. So it's a real honor. That is wild indeed. All right. um, There's a lot that I want to go over with you, namely the fact that I think for the first time in anyone's memory, there is going to be a big eclipse, a total lunar eclipse on Tuesday, which happens to be Election Day. Now, there's got to be some sort of cosmic meaning about some uh, upset election wins in this year. What's, what, uh, what can we look forward to with this eclipse on Tuesday? Well, it's interesting. We'll start with the East Coast, Frank. It's a total lunar eclipse. This follows one that we just had back in May. 
that was pretty much favored for the western part of the United States, and this one technically also is. So for everybody listening in the eastern time zone, and don't forget, we make the big time change for a good portion of the United States, and then times change too as you're looking at this eclipse. So it's just brief synopsis here. It's a very early morning eclipse. There's a lot of technicalities on this, but I would just suggest to everybody on the East Coast that if you're looking to see this eclipse, it's going to happen very early in the morning, just before sunrise. So the eclipse will actually begin, the partial phases in Eastern time, Eastern Standard Time, 4.09 a.m. That's when you'd have to be placed in a clear location, you know, not near buildings, the clearest view of the horizon. Totality is going to begin at 5.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and just convert time zones across the country. The mid-eclipse of this particular event, which is the totality phase, 5.59 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this total eclipse will end at 6.41 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time again. But what's interesting, Frank, there's 85 minutes of totality. And what does that mean? It means that the moon, which will be just a few days before apogee, meaning it's almost at its farthest point away. So it's a smaller disk moon that you'll see with the eye. And it gets more time inside that central shadow. So it transits through the Earth's deep shadow called the Umbra. And it lasts for some 85 minutes. But if you look at the entire thing from uh, geopolitics or whatever, there has never been a total lunar eclipse on Election Day in U.S. history. That's an interesting fact. So isn't that kind of auspicious? Here we go for people that, of course, are going to go vote. and We encourage that in person if they haven't done their part mailing things. We're going to be having this eclipse just before sunrise. It takes place, and then that full day of the election. So the next time in history, according to those that do these deep predictions, when would be the next total lunar eclipse if the country exists or if we're out doing elections? I hope so. Mark the date of November the 8th, 2394. 2394, so at about 372 years. You're exactly right. And there's a magical number there that you just mentioned because these, these eclipses repeat in a cycle of about 372 years for it to happen on the same date. But this eclipse is part of something called a Cero cycle, and I don't want to get too deep into it because of other questions that I'm sure people have. It's called a Cero cycle number 136. And the last time we had an eclipse of this series, so Ceroses have a series of eclipses, and there's so many of them. The last one occurred back on October the 28th of 2004. And the next one of that Cero cycle, not to confuse everyone, would occur on November the 18th of 2040. So this is a fascinating thing that's going to happen. And now, if you scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute, Dr. Sky, what's uh, going to be the next total lunar eclipse that we can see in relativistic short time in the short term? Mark the date of March 14th, 2025. So that's the next big one. So if you miss this one, weather conditions, you know, a lot of times the weather doesn't cooperate. But if it does, it's going to be a big event. Out here in Arizona, of course, we'll be doing things for local television and all the other things, plus a group of people that want to watch it. So get that coffee going and uh, dress warmly in accordance with the weather. So it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take questions throughout the hour for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, this is uh, the first time I believe that, yeah, not I believe, this is the first time we've spoken that you are being heard in Alaska, uh, we are on now on a great oh. station, uh, KBYR, in, in Anchorage, Alaska. Anything oh. you could tell folks about um, their Alaska sky viewing? Because I have, a, I have a hunch that there's some particularly interesting sights to see over there. 
Well, I envy them, and welcome to the family, as you would say, Frank, and of course we all mean that. The more stations that this particular radio show is heard, obviously it's great to get this message out on the other side of midnight, but to go right to it. Those folks, I envy them in a way. Obviously the temperature we all know would be colder, but for the darkness that comes, the shorting, shortness of the days that are happening right now, this eclipse should be visible up to the, you know, in the great state of Alaska. But it's interesting up there, Frank. One of the things that I think maybe we should do is team up with that radio station, and I'm serious about it. The best thing they have that we don't have is regular occurrences, as they're probably going, yep, we get it pretty much all the time, the beautiful Aurora Borealis. Can you imagine seeing that on a regular basis with all the sun activity? So Aurora activity is strong. The moon continues to get brighter. Obviously, it'll be a little lower in the sky because of the higher latitude. But, wow. That's a great place, and I've not been there. Have you ever been no, there? No, no. My my parents were there on uh, on an Alaska cruise or two, and uh, they've had nothing but great things to say. So it is it is on my list. It is on my Absolutely. list. Absolutely, would be great. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, how you doing? Um, Good morning, Bill. All right. Now, when I was a child. I looked at pictures of nebula and galaxies in Life magazine, and the Orion Nebula was red, white, and blue, and the Ring Nebula was yellow and red, and the Andromeda Galaxy was golden in the core, and then the spiral arms, it was purple. And then my parents bought me a telescope, and the, the Orion Nebula was white, and the ring nebula was this faint smoke ring, and uh, Andromeda was a fuzzy white oval. And I figured out that all of this was a figment of the color film they used. Yes. Okay. And now we have these automated space telescopes. Bill, Bill you're aware we only have an hour here, right? <laughs> I love it. Bill? Yeah, okay. All right. The colors are totally false, and they make the near-infrared image brown, and they superimpose them all. Okay? Now, sure. I know all that. All right, Bill. I, I'm sorry. I got to take pity on the audience here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. If you want to comment, uh, Steve, on uh, any – no, ahead, I please. think Bill's gone to something, and here's the simple response I'd give from what I think. That I diminishes gather. your credibility right there. No, it was very interesting what he was talking about. The images that are coming through from these telescopes, they have these grandiose color images. They're long-term exposures with different type of cameras, even a regular camera out in space, if you would expose it, like we know from simple film days, the more color and resolution you're going to get. And he's right. When you look in a simple telescope, I've had people come up to me and say, hey, you know, that's nothing like I saw in Life magazine, like Bill was talking about. The reason is your eye doesn't have this, the perceptibility because the eye is seeing something in a different way, and it doesn't have a time exposure. It's looking at it in real life. So the images you see in the telescope, as good as they are, are not going to have all these grandiose colors. It's going to be done by those big, long exposures from space telescopes or cameras, even here on the Earth, can get color. All right. Well, um, a lot of folks have been talking about Elon Musk this week because of his purchase of Twitter. Uh, some folks may forget that before he was running Twitter, he was involved in a little company called SpaceX, and they had a big yeah. week themselves. SpaceX Falcon Heavy 
the most powerful operational rocket in the world, finally launched out of Florida on Tuesday morning. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's very interesting here, and not to knock NASA, but this came across, you know, talking to local people, we do a lot of outdoor programs with this guy, and a good percentage of younger adults and seniors come up to me and go, hey, how can Elon Musk just get these rockets off on schedule and has a pretty good success rate, and why can't NASA do it? Well, the answer to follow. But let's give him all the kudos that he deserves and their team. This, as you mentioned correctly, the most powerful rocket to date, some five and a half million pounds of thrust. It gets off the ground with three cores, basically, the one left and right, and a central core, which has another secondary rocket up there, too, for the payload. So if you take these 27 Merlin engines, Frank, this is what this is powered by. It's an incredible feat of technology to develop these Merlin engines. They each have about 190,000 pounds of thrust on them. They're using a combination of fuel. I call it binary, but that's not totally accurate, of liquid oxygen and a chilled RP-1, which in the simple world is called kerosene in a different derivative. So they launched this rocket. And here's the great thing. NASA didn't get the contract for launching some of the military secret satellites, which basically on board here, there's probably two. And what makes this mission even more interesting, that it gets off on time, almost like what? Just like clockwork, like you would imagine. This particular rocket has so much power that it sent two of these, you know, in quotes, secret payloads from the Space Force up to geosynchronous orbit. That's 22,000 miles up. So normally what these other rockets would do is launch them to a lower altitude where the spacecraft actually has to use its engines to boost itself up to the stationary geosynchronous. No, this rocket pushes it all the way up there in one fell swoop, which is amazing. And you actually see the two side boosters do the impossible. Now, if I was watching television like you and everybody else 40 years ago, and if we imagine we just watched Alan Shepard go up in the little Redstone rocket back in 61, can we imagine if we actually saw that rocket that he launched up in do a soft landing? That would have just like been, no, that can't happen. And it did. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. So this SpaceX Falcon rocket, um, why was it delayed three years? Well, they had a lot of issues that they were trying to get. It goes more into the politics of this, and they had the contracts see. that they had to get signed. But the good news is, and let me go back to the comparison, and, and I just wanted to give us a short answer if there's time. It's amazing, and again, we all love what NASA's doing. Look at the great history. But for some strange reason, and some people think it's not strange, they just have so many issues going on with this liquid hydrogen and the leaks and stuff like that. Their next ag- agenda here, their next launch agenda is to do this, and we wish them well on November the 14th. And as we speak right now, I don't have a confirmation of this, it's more than likely that this rocket, the Artemis 1, is actually starting to roll out of the vehicle assembly building to its long trek to get to the launch pad. they got to get this off the ground. But somehow, and, and I really can't figure it out, does he have a smarter team mm. of people? I don't know, but look at the great things. That was their 50th space launch of this year, and it just seems like it never ends. And Frank... There's so many more of these so-called military secret pay- payloads that, are, that they have contract for, and they're eventually going to launch the Europa Clipper, which is a spacecraft that's going to explore the, jo- the Jovian moon Europa to look for ocean underneath the surface, a spacecraft. And the Psyche metallic uh, asteroid mission is also slated to be launched on a Falcon Heavy. And we haven't seen nothing yet because he's even got a more powerful rocket that there's going to work on. But Artemis... God bless them for what they're doing. That'll have eight point something million pounds of thrust. Then that will take the uh, you know 
the prize of being the most powerful rocket in the earth. Uh, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you have questions about anything related to space, astronomy, and so forth, now's the time. Uh, four open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The Capris singing about a moon out tonight. Well, if you are wondering what is in the night sky, including the moon, that's worth looking at, you are tuned to the right radio station. My guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a WABC contributor and a podcaster at WABCradio.com. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster. And he is what we call an edutainer who educates as he entertains, specifically as it relates to astronomy and space. But we're not limited to those areas. Steve, um, you obviously mentioned the eclipse that's going to take place on Tuesday. Between now and then, is there anything else in the night sky that uh, people should be on the lookout for? Well, sure, Frank. As we move into November, this is fireball season. And this is an interesting time of the year. What do I mean by that? This particular time of year, we go through debris from what we call Comet Enki, one of the second, it was actually the second comet that was discovered, which has an orbital period. First one, of course, is Comet Halley, the 76-year comet that moves around the sun. So from now until maybe sometime around maybe the middle of November, and I know the moon is getting brighter, for those that have patience, and that's what you need, patience is a real virtue at this. If you can, stay outside just around dusk, look to the sky, maybe even toward the morning sky. Look everywhere in the sky. You know, it's kind of hard to keep your eyes, you know, in one position because there's, you may see some of these bright objects. We just had one here over Tucson, Arizona, that was brighter than the full moon. Their debris from this, they think, that is what the astronomers think, debris from this comet Enki that might have shattered many, many millions of years ago. And believe me, folks, this is quite interesting. And, Frank, you know, the darker locations are favored. But I've seen a number of these, so you never know what you're going to see. But for the regular things that are in the sky, and they're pretty exciting, this is planetary season also. As the sun sets, if you look high in the south in a clear sky, you'll see Saturn visible to the naked eye. Just scan to the left as you move toward that position in the east. The brightest object now that sits in the, in the night sky in the evening is, is Jupiter. And it's beautiful. It's bright. You can see it better in a telescope. Even binoculars show you some of the moons if you hold it steady. But, Frank, Mars is now taking over as really this amazing object. Look into the northeast, right around 10 p.m., 
So that orangey-looking object that you see is now less than 57 million miles away from the Earth. It's getting closer for a close encounter that's going to take place right around December the 7th. And there's going to be an interesting event for some parts of the listening audience that has the planet Mars will be actually eclipsed by that full moon in December. That'll be an amazing thing to see. But when I look in the telescope now, and I'm describing the telescope, it's probably eight-inch diameter telescope, meaning the mirror's eight-inch diameter. That's pretty standard. I can look at Mars right now and see it almost full. I can see surface features on there. And I can see in the northern polar cap, there's this blue haze that's over it because it's winter in the northern hemisphere now on Mars. And you can see that blue contrast. What is it? It's ice particles suspended in the air. So if you were there, it'd be extremely cold, like 140 below zero, maybe some winds. But you can see this. But Mars is getting closer. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting planet to see. So those are some of the summary items of what we can see in November. And then another meteor shower called the Leonids on the morning of the 19th. That's amazing. Is that something you could see with the naked eye, or you should have binoculars or something for that? Well, for that, it, it's interesting. Now, I get in trouble when I talk about meteor showers, because a lot of people will email me and say, hey, I was out there, and you're telling me you can see meteors, and they only saw two. Again, patience is a virtue. But you can see it with the naked eye. This is interesting. The Leonids sometimes roar. Now, every 33 years, you get an uptick, but you don't know what to expect. You know, it's like that box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So when you look into the eastern sky for this, this starts around 2 a.m. on the night of the 18th. And if you look to the east, that's where Leo will rise, the zodiac sign. Right in the head of Leo is where they come out. But, Frank, in 1966, I wasn't here in Arizona, but I remember this uh, from reading this, you know, over the last couple of decades. People were sitting on the top of Kitt Peak, one of the big telescopes in southern Arizona. And the Leonids weren't doing much. They were supposed to. Around 5.30 in the morning on the 16th of November in 1966, this is not made up. This is bizarre. I wish I was there. You wish. Everybody would wish. There were over 500,000 meteors streaming out of the sky in this big, hellacious storm as if you were driving with bright headlights through a snowstorm. Now, can you imagine that much debris? The whole oh. sky, it looked as if something it, it, just absolutely from a dreamscape, seeing all these meteors, 500,000 an hour. It lasted for well, from that time around 5.30 till sunrise, about 45 minutes. Imagine seeing that. So you never know what you get with the Leonids. They're like one of the more reliable showers. They're faint, sometimes faint meteors, sometimes bright, and they're very fast. Mm. Oh, that's, uh, well, uh, so see it with the naked eye at your own peril, right? We'll in say, the dark at your sky, own right. Yeah. But patience, patience is the thing because then I want to get in untrouble or out of trouble. Because when I always tell people the truth, you know, obviously a lot of these things, like when Bill was talking about, you know, I, he was making sense. When you look in the telescope, you see blue and white and you don't see color because it's something that your eye can't perceive because those are cameras doing that. But, Frank, there's a whole lot of things people can do, even city dwellers, and that's what we appeal to. You mm -hmm. can do astronomy right from your own backyard. Uh, no, that's what's so great about it. 800-848-9222. Rose is in New Jersey. Rose, you're on with Steve Cates. Yes, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Good morning, Rose. How are you? Yeah. Oh, it's great. Great talking to you. Um, you. I've taken I've taken a lot of classes in college on astronomy. I, I just loved it. And um, can you explain uh, if the universe is expanding or contracting, does that even apply today? Yeah. And also, if we just send a rocket and if it just keeps going and going and going, what, 
what what happens? Great answers. Let's take the first one, Rose, and they're great questions, as we all love the study of the sky and astronomy. As this universe seems to be expanding, we know that from this big explosion, sometimes incorrectly referred to as the Big Bang. I like to call it the Big Expansion because we weren't around here to see something explode. Obviously, it was way before the Earth was forming. But what most people feel in the world of astronomy, quantum physics today, the big conundrum, and I talk about it a lot, is that the farther these objects are away, you would imagine that there would be more entropy or disorder. What's happening is quite the opposite. Instead of the universe slowing down, what we're seeing is that it's actually expanding and going faster. In other words, it's acceleration. And it's something that we think we call, we know what we call it, is dark energy, but nobody really quite understands what would happen to that. And not to, you know, belager this with the details too much, this whole thing about entropy is interesting. What is it? It's a systems measure of thermal energy that is unavailable for doing useful work. So in simple terms, entropy is disorder. So it looks like the universe is not going to that entropy level as we see something pushing it faster. But if you took a rocket, I think that was your second part or second question is what would happen what if it continued out into space? Since there's mm-hmm. no gravity forces in deep space, the object would considerably it would just con- continue that is excuse me, continue to move through space at whatever relative speed it was unless there was a gravity force exerted on it. Let's say it ran out of power. It would just continue to move through space because there's no resistive force in there. And that would be quite interesting for anybody on board because there's no, well, how are you going to break something or slow it down? It would just continue to go if no exertion of gravity was near it or around it. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Rose. 800-848-9222. Pete is in Wappingers Falls. Hello, Pete. Hey, Dr. Sky. Good morning. I had a, good morning. I had a question. Are there any space police? Like, what stops one of these mega billionaires from buying an island, making it his own country, sure. building a rocket, sending it up there, and hitting one of our main satellites? Who controls that? Because nobody owns well, space. Well, there's a whole thing called space law. And I know that sounded funny when I mentioned about 20 years ago to people there was something called astrobiology. Well, they said, well, what's that? Well, the thing you're talking about is you're absolutely right. In the United States, the FAA is going to be the people that you're going to have to work with, at least to even do anything, go through this whole procedural process. Elon Musk had to do that when he started to launch rockets from Texas in Boca Chica. But you're right. He started in this country. But is there anybody we had? We don't have a Starfleet, you know, well, we've got Space Force, right, Steve? Well, we have a space force, but no, to go on to your question, Pete, no, to answer it. No, this is interesting. I'm I'm just trying to say this, that in other, let's say I went into a tiny little country somewhere and they didn't have any real sophisticated, you know, military or, or, or governance, you know, wherever that would be. Let's just say I choose to do this in Antarctica, whereas who's controlling Antarctica? I mean, it's supposed to be a free, a neutral zone where you're not going to have nuclear weapons and military bases. But right. if I started to launch rockets, it's some maybe some nation might give me a hard time, but the point is you could probably launch whatever you wanted. And the problem is even now with the big nations right now, we're talking about Russia, you know, not, not to talk right, crazy. Obviously. Yeah. They're looking to even have the they, they have the capability and they've even warned us that if we do something in the Ukraine that they don't like or, you know, mess with something, I don't know the details, that theoretically they could shoot down some of our satellites and so could China. But the truth of the matter is, I'm sure we have the equal force, too, because a long time ago, here's, here's the final part of this. I think you'd appreciate this, Pete. 
We developed from the F-15 something a long time ago called an ASAT. It's a, it's a missile that actually can go on, let's say, an F-15. And an F-15 can do this time-to-climb thing, which it can shoot those big afterburners up on the twin-engine F-15. And it could actually go so high, so fast, it could launch that missile from the aircraft. We could shoot a satellite down. So they're not the only people that have this capability. But right, Pete, why can't we all just get along, I guess, is really the bottom line in the whole thing. Exactly. Pretty, pretty amazing. 800 Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, great show, Dr. Sky. Um, hey, was, Jay. How are you? Fine. I was kind of a rock hound, amateur rock hound as kids. We used to hunt fossils in creek beds. Did yep. they ever find any fossil proof, you know, extraterrestrial, like on meteorites or the moon rocks, for instance, of, of ancient life elsewhere? No, not that I know of. And there's something very interesting that you bring up here, because this is interesting, Jay. There was a meteor or a meteoroid, whatever you want to call it, a chunk of asteroid, that actually came down somewhere, and I don't know the exact location. I'm pretty much a guesser here, but I'm honest. It was somewhere down, say, like in, in, off of Indonesia, I guess. And the orbital calculations on that indicated that it might have been an extrasolar type of object. In other words, it came from another star system. So the, the search quietly has been on for that. And maybe that, if they could ever really track it or find it, but good luck. It's probably in, I'm guessing, maybe, what, thousands of feet of water, and unless you have the old Howard Hughes Glomar Explorer <laughs> that can actually go in the ocean and dig up like Russian submarines and stuff, that would be difficult. But no, there, there's never been anything truly identified as being, you know, other than standard biology that we see. Like the moon rocks didn't show us that there's another species, you know, like a dinosaur egg of some kind of life or some crazy thing like that. So, no, uh, maybe those extrasolar uh, asteroids, if we find one, maybe we'll get some more positives on it. Thank you, Jay. You know, Steve, you, uh, it strikes me we spent a lot of time talking about the objects that come from space to this Earth. Yes. And in our previous conversations, we've spent a lot of time talking about space junk, which are oh, essentially yeah. byproducts of uh, things that we've sent into space. Um, sure. th- there's got to be a lot of concern about long-term space pollution or contamination. What is the most contaminated thing we've ever sent into space? Well, this is kind of funny, and it's an interesting story. And I read this, believe it or not, just about two weeks ago, and it has to do with Elon Musk. And I can't prove this, but some, I've, I've looked at it a couple of sources, and it said yes. So here we go. We never intentionally sent something to the moon, like a, you know, a virus like the COVID virus, God help us. What they found out was when they launched Elon Musk's first Falcon Heavy back on February the 6th of 2018, what was the payload? It was his Tesla Roadster, the car. And in there, they put that cool little dummy, the Starman, in there. And sooner or later, it was actually later, they showed images of that whole thing as it came out of the capsule, you know, the upper stage. And it was floating around the Earth, and you see these pictures. And now it's going on an orbit that takes it around by Mars. But they're saying that that car might be still the most contaminated object because what? That car was driven on the freeways of Los Angeles. I don't know how much they debunked that, but what would you have to do to make it? Because you see in these rooms, like in JPL, you see all these people in these white suits with masks and you know hoods on and hats to decontaminate any spacecraft because you don't want to pollute space mm-hmm. with microbes from the Earth. So that might still be, according to some, but it's not destined to land on anything. That's the interesting part. So... The Tesla Roadster goes into history. But, you know, 
I would have kept the car in the ground. I don't know. I'd like that car, wouldn't you? <laughs> Same here. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in New Jersey. Hello, David. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, um, David. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, sir. Uh, so if if there's a uh, – assuming you have a spaceship um, mm-hmm. with a near-limitless fuel uh, supply, let's say a nuclear supply – going through outer space, and it continues to provide thrust, mm-hmm. um, will that, at what point does that spaceship reach terminal velocity? Or is there a terminal velocity since, there is, since, there's no, um, since there's no gravity pulling it anywhere? Well, again, as I mentioned before, when Rose called and was talking about what happens when you just have a spacecraft going out into space, In this particular case, if you're talking about deep space, we're up, down, sideways, left, and right. It's not like north, south, east, or west. If you had velocity on a spacecraft, it would continue to go through space and just continue to move unless it was perturbed by another gravity source. Let's say it came closer to a planet. But this is interesting because I don't know if you heard this originally. I know, Frank, you had in your previous hour, you had somebody talking about time travel. Right. And this is bizarre because if we get into the thing of, well, would this thing get close to the speed of light or move out? You've got to remember, what this, what's the speed? It's relative to the expansion of the universe out there. So the mega speed of that is also related to the gigantic expansion of the universe. But this whole time travel thing, it's very interesting. It simply violates the second law of thermodynamics because randomness must always continue on. In other words, you how do I say this in a simple way? Time can only move in one direction. It's called the arrow of time. And this gets very confusing because a lot of people think, well, we could go back in time. That's the most problematic thing. Why, I don't know, but the arrow of time simply goes in one direction. It's stated that it violates time travel, simply violates the second law of thermodynamics. So this particular randomness must always increase. So it's this entropy thing about disorder and I think that's probably deep enough for what? For this time of the morning. Oh, yeah. No, that's for because, sure. And I'll be honest. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, to everybody calling, hey, if I don't know something, I'm just going to be straight up here. You know, it, it's, the, it's the best way to have a good night's sleep after you do a show when you're honest, right? There you go. Exactly. I'm going to try that one one day. Um, <laughs> if, if, uh, we've heard a lot about the uh, NASA Artemis Project. What mm-hmm. is the latest with the Artemis Project? How soon is, are we going to see some concrete results from Artemis? Well, again, kudos to all the engineers and space scientists that are working on this project. It's going to be the most powerful rocket. As I mentioned before, I can't confirm this. Maybe from your computer you can during the break. But I've been told that it's supposed to be moved out as early as this morning. as It's on its tractor, you know, the big mobile launcher. Right. I mean, the mobile tractor that moves it out, not the launcher, to the launch pad. But then the latest date on this, or the most you know, reliable date so far, is they're shooting for about an November the 14th launch date. Now, I've heard some people say it could be as early as the 12th, but let's hope this time that they get this baby up into space, because not only will it be the most powerful rocket, because what you're trying to do here is you need to have the heavy lift rockets get payloads to space. And that's why with Elon Musk, gotcha. he, has, he has the ability, Frank, to get heavy payloads to low Earth orbit, like up to 140,000 pounds. But with this particular Artemis, you can obviously start building the Gateway Space Station that will go around the moon and so many other things. So the simple answer is between November 12th and 14th 
should be the next launch date. And we give them, uh, you know, uh, the greatest success. We pray for the greatest success for the rocket to go. Joe is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, Dr. Sky, it's an honor to speak to you. I heard you many times before. But it's great to be able to talk to you about this. One question I have, I'm sure. Yes, one question I'm sure you've been asked about, and it's been on my mind since I've ever thought about, you know, we'll call mm-hmm. you up before uh, Carl Sagan and everything else like that. Space itself, I mean, looking at how far it goes back through all the galaxies mm-hmm. and this and that, do you think yes. we're ever going to find out where, I mean, it actually starts? I mean, to the point that where you can't go any further, like there's a, a distinct line going across the atmosphere, and it's like you can't go any beyond that, is that or it just keeps on going to the point that we'll never know how far it's- space actually goes? No, you ask it most. I think, Frank, if this was the question of the of, oh, of yeah. the hour, I think this would be the one. No doubt. No, seriously, I don't know, but I can just tell you from my own knowledge and research that about 94 billion light years is the expansion edge of the universe right now. That's what they think. But the truth is, I don't think it's ever going to have a definitive end because if space and time, it, it's all it's all combined. In other words, it's a limitless expansion. It, it's going to continue on, we believe, forever. And the other theory, the dark theory is, is that there'll be something which slows the universe down and that will collapse again into its own original form. But no, the simple answer is I don't think there is an end and I don't think we'll ever know the end. And it just continues to expand because remember, expand. Everything that we are, you, me, everything in this room, everything in your studio, everything that everybody's sitting in front of is all star stuff from that original expansion 13.77 billion years ago. Imagine seeing that, but uh, that's mind-boggling just to think about here. Thank you, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. There's been a ton of Mars news in the last couple of days. Story about Mars quakes, uh, hinting that the planet might be volcanically active. A story that there are these uh, that NASA spotting pimples on Mars. A story about that the InSight Mars lander um, may just have weeks left, and even some people saying that uh, scientists unveiling further proof of salt water on Mars. What is the latest with Mars, and is it true that Mars is actually coming closer to our planet? Well, it is coming closer to us, as I mentioned before, in the as I call it, the live sky view, what people can actually see. Because I think there's nothing worse than just talking about things that people can't see. So Mars, when you look in the northeast sky, or that's, I'm saying, around 10 p.m., now it's high in your sky as you're listening across this great country. You can see it. It's a red-orange object. But let's go back to Mars, what's happening. Spacecraft Perseverance, still doing great research, actually drilling cores into the surface and to rocks. And it's actually saving these in little tubes. And what it's going to be doing, Frank, it needs to find a flat area. They haven't determined, well, they know the name of it, but they haven't gotten there yet. It's going to discharge these little tubes as time goes on. And all that is going to be for another lander that they're hoping to have go up in the next couple of years, which will actually retrieve these little cylinders, I call them glass test tubes, and bring them back to the Earth so we can actually see this. But you're right. They had a Mars quake of about four-something on the Richter scale the other day. That's kind of unusual for Mars because Mars doesn't have plate tectonics like the Earth does. So you would imagine that this is a whole different type of mechanism that's causing it. We don't know. But what we were talking about with John Katsimatidis the other day, he asked me an interesting question about the Mars moons, like Phobos. And Mars has the two tiny little moons. And believe me, I'm going to go off into the sci-fi realm here because they're the strangest little objects. 
Little Phobos and Deimos are named after the horses, the horse, I should say, or the horses that drove or pulled the chariot that Ares or Mars, you know, went into battle with. They're called panic and fear. But what's strange about Little Phobos, too, is that it looks like it was a captured satellite from something, or even some speculate, maybe an alien-type artifact. Who knows why? Because eventually those moons will cascade and crash into the planet. But here's a weird story. Culliver's Travels was written by Jonathan Swift. And in the book, I remember reading it in school, like, you know, in high school, we had to read it. The Lilliputians were the little people that he came upon, and they actually wrote about in their book, and this is what Jonathan Swift wrote, about 150 years before the Mars moons were discovered, he got the exact size, the exact shapes, the exact distances from Mars, and we didn't discover the Martian moons until 1877 at the Naval Observatory, where the vice president lives. Wow. A guy named Asaph Hall actually discovered those in a telescope. So isn't that the strangest thing? So maybe you Jonathan know? Swift was a uh, time traveler. Yeah, there you go, my friend. It's, like, it's always great to speculate. But isn't that one of the most bizarre that, stories? That because is wild. Um, those, those two moons are very unusual. They're very strange. Oh, boy, that's wild. 800 We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Welcome to Earth, Earth Rock from the Sun. Smokies, one hip at a time, like a broken field runner, slipping through the line. He likes the way she looks, so he calls a little wife, says, don't wait up for me, I'll be working late tonight. Wife hangs up the phone, bursts into tears, calls her sister up and cries, get over here. This is The Other Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. Very pleased to be joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, we'll squeeze in as many of your questions as we can in the next few minutes. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve, I, I believe you know yes. we. I am a fan of uh, Star Trek, and uh, you hear all sorts of news from time to time in the world of Star Trek about gamma rays. What exactly is a gamma ray uh, that's real as opposed to being fictional? And um, what what are some of the more noteworthy gamma ray bursts that have been detected? Well, this is highly charged particles from space. It's like atomic nuclei that are like smashing into each other with these great power. You know, if, if you took a look at this in the ultraviolet, you'd see more of this that part of the spectrum. It's a very, very powerful energies. We really don't know that as astronomers where the source of these gamma ray bursters are from. In other words, the simplest explanation might be this. When a star collapses, it can become a black hole, certain types of stars. When other stars collapse, they can become neutron stars. I'll take the neutron star as a candidate. Imagine this. A neutron star would be about six miles in diameter. I'll repeat it. Six miles in diameter. The magnetic field around that would be so disruptive if the Earth, now this is ridiculous, but here we go sci-fi-wise, if you could move the Earth next to the six-mile neutron star, it would collapse the Earth to a sphere of a 1,000 feet in diameter, a 1,000 feet. How would it do that? The power of this magnetic field is so great. 
if we had one of these gamma ray bursters, let's say out by the planet Pluto or the dwarf planet now, it would strip off all the magnetic stripes off of every single credit card you have. Maybe that's good or bad, depending if you use it too much. But the reality is these energy fields that are coming off of these stars, one burst that happened in October was the singular most powerful blast of energy from the universe ever detected. And that is off the charts. And it goes off into sci-fi. But I wanted to mention something briefly. You mentioned at the top of the program the story, as you introduced, my favorite movie, too, Forbidden Planet. And this goes back to 1956, my year of birth. But what's so amazing, Frank, I had a long time ago an interview with both Leslie Nielsen and the beautiful Anne Francis. Oh, I'll never boy. forget this. Wow. No, I'll never forget this. And Les, I couldn't stop laughing when I had this interview with Leslie because actually, here's how I met him really quick. I was shopping at a Costco here in Phoenix about 20-some years ago. And I literally came around the corner rushing to get out of the store, and I hit my cart into another person's cart, and I said, excuse me. And I looked up, and guess who it was? Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen shopped at Costco. <laughs> she, well, he did. He's passed on to the infinite. But I said to him, you know, I'm fascinated. I said, would you ever do a, like a, you know, an opportunity? Could we ever talk? And he's like, yes. So when I had him on the phone, the producer of the show and I, I couldn't stop laughing because I keep thinking of Frank Drebin. And he was talking like Frank Drebin from, you know, Airplane and, and all that. But the serious note, Anne Francis, wow, what a beautiful oh, person. Yeah. What a wonderful woman. And I caught her in an interview when she was rushing, but she spent about 45 minutes with me talking about her, her role as Altera Morbius. You know, I never obviously met Walter Pidgeon or talked to him. He passed on a long time ago as Dr. Edward Morbius. But that was a great time in my life. But the thing is, I just love that movie so Same, much. Same, absolutely. It, it, it's even a classic today. Absolutely. Hey, uh, before I let you go, I can't uh, avoid asking you about the news this week that uh, scientists have discovered a planet-killer asteroid nearly a mile long within yes. the orbits of Earth and Venus. Now, I know we talked about the DART project, and mm -hmm. NASA claims to be pretty practiced at diverting these asteroids by now. But would you be urging people to get their affairs in order? I would say you probably have to not really worry too much right now, but, but here, here's the science truth on this. You're right. They discovered something different, but this is something where I've always said this, and I'm not the leader of this. I'm always repeating what the other scientists say. Watch the skies in the area of what asteroids come from behind the sun. In other words, if you look in a bright, sunny day, don't stare at the sun, but these are asteroids that come into our field in our orbital plane from the direction of the sun. And this happens to be one of those objects. It's un unbelievable. And that, you know, with all the great science and all the calculations, and they have it pretty good down there at JPL where they track all these. But the interesting thing, Frank, is that's, kind of, that's the kind of object that you want to watch very carefully because it's coming in in an area where it's surprising you. And if it's going to come and hit the Earth, at least you want to give us at least some kind of warning. Because even this little DART project, it's moved a tiny little asteroid only 520 feet in diameter, a nudge. We don't have anything yet, not to scare people, that would push that baby completely away from the Earth. That's what we got to keep watching. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Tony in Clifton has been patiently holding. Hello, Tony. Hi. You know, I... Good morning. I just love the whole concept of all our astronauts who really have made space travel be be part of our lives. And we've never yes. even, you know, gone up into space. 
And one of my favorites is John uh, John Glenn, who later became a senator. Mm-hmm. You know, as you look at all the astronauts from your point of view, who would be your favorite astronaut? And you know, that did the most from the space programs and and took us sort of further than any other. Do you have Tony, do you have a favorite? One? Oh yeah, I love your question, Tony. And also going back to John Glenn, I had a short interview with him a long time for Space Day. And reading wow. about his biography, I mean, what what a great American, what a great person. But here's the other one that I had some time to really spend time with or talk with. I loved the stories that I heard from Wally Schirra. I mean, other than the Tang commercials that he did, but him and Walter Cronkite were obviously very close during the early part of the space program. But those two right. astronauts, to me, they epitomized the whole thing about sacrifice dedication to country and and their stories i hope were told by many many people and children learn that these great americans helped us move on to the stars and the story is just beginning thank you tony i'm a fan of buzz aldrin uh not only for his accomplishments in space but because he's he's such a character he i love that he doesn't hold his tongue about anything i love that uh he uh he's very vocal about going to mars now and Mm -hmm. uh i love that uh you know i think before it's all said and done he'll have been a great pioneer in terms of lunar travel and a great advocate in terms of Martian exploration and Martian travel. 800-848-9222. Chris is on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Yeah, a quick question. I guess this is related to the global warming discussion. Is it true that the surface of Venus is heating up? Well, Chris, the surface of Venus is pretty much a constant temperature. It's a horrible temperature. You know, that's why we're talking about that with some other folks. The surface temperature, excuse me, is well over 900 degrees Fahrenheit on a regular basis. So even spacecraft can't continue to, you know, survive there. The pressures are like taking that spacecraft down to, say, 3,000 feet in the ocean, the depth pressure, which none of them really survived. So it's not necessarily heating up anymore. It's just that we're the biggest question in science with Venus is, what happened to Venus because it turns backwards on its orbit? In other words, when it goes around the sun, it's going around like the regular planets, but it's rotating backwards. So if you're on Venus, God help us with the 900 degrees, we need a big asbestos suit. The sun would rise in the west, and its day is longer than its year. So imagine that baking sun through that sulfuric acid-type atmosphere. Not a place that I think any, all three of us want to go and anybody listening. Thank you, Chris. Um, Mike in New Hyde Park. Very quickly, Mike. Dr. Sky, do you think there's any potential that the universe is not merely expanding, but perhaps growing? Expansion being an obvious characteristic of growth. Mm -hmm. I would say this. From what we know and what I do in my interviews with other people, I don't have a book out on this, and I'm certainly always honest with the audience. To answer your question, I think the universe is continuing to expand, and we have to figure out what the heck the nature of this dark energy is, because it's continuing to move everything out faster when you would imagine it's to slow down. Frank, the excitement's just beginning, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, people can hear more from Dr. Sky at uh, wabcradio.com, and uh, you can also read the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Steve, it's always a treat. Thank you. My pleasure. Look forward to our next encounter. Same here. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars while you keep your feet on the ground. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Happy Friday, TGIF. I am continually amazed at the amount of attorneys that have been to prison. We have had on this show, I think, five or six separate attorneys, former attorneys, that have been convicted of crimes and went to prison. Maybe more. Actually, no. If you include Paul Manafort, seven. Right? Um... We are going to be joined by another one in about 20 minutes. This one is, he doesn't, he doesn't want his identity known, so he is known only as Anonymous. But he's written a book uh, all about what it's like going to prison. And I read through the book. It's short, and it's a quick enough read that if you ever find yourself going to prison or have a loved one going to prison, I'm not joking, it actually does provide a pretty handy-dandy guide to going to prison. So we're going to get into it in uh, just a bit. But first, there are a lot of people that need to be called out. There are a lot of people that need to be castigated. There are a lot of people that need to be reproached. And there are a lot of people that need to be denounced. The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I must begin by denouncing the Attorney General of the State of New York, Letitia James. Who is this woman kidding? Now, I have a long-standing I don't know, tradition or a habit of anybody that can indict me or prosecute me, I try to avoid publicly criticizing. Um, I have to violate that directive here. Letitia James is up for election this this year, re-election, and she is refusing, outright refusing to debate her only opponent, Republican Michael Henry. There will be there was no debate this year in the race for state attorney general after Tish James officially declined the opportunity to face Michael Henry on New York One. The debate was supposed to be Wednesday. And it did not happen after Tish James formally declined the station's invite. Now, this is crazy. This is insane. And Stu Lozer, who I know, who's a campaign spokesman for uh, Letitia James, basically said that um, they're declining because this would be an opportunity for our opponent to make totally factless, baseless statements well, how about then you use that opportunity to correct the record? Is it better to not have any discussion? Not let the voters see the differences between the two candidates? I really think it says a lot about a politician when they won't even bother to debate. And I was not going to vote for... I like Letitia James as a person, but I was not going to vote for her anyway. I think she's been abysmal as an attorney general. But if I were inclined to vote for her, This would sour me on her in a hurry. Letitia James, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the New York Times. There was a big article in Monday's New York Times all about the Crown Heights riots. Well, it wasn't about the Crown Heights riots. 
but it explored how the Hasidic Jewish community became a political force in New York. Now, it was an interesting, it was an interesting article. However, uh, they completely whitewashed what occurred in the Crown Heights riots. It uh, and this article is rightly so being condemned as inaccurate for this portion. It described the 1991 Crown Heights riots as turning streets into combat zones, pitting groups of Hasidic Jews against mostly black men. Now, I was alive during the Crown Heights riots. I remember exactly what occurred uh, during the Crown Heights riots. Um, This is ridiculous. The recap of the Crown Heights riots in in this article is absurd. The Times itself, uh, by its own journalists, later publicly admitted that they failed to accurately cover the Crown Heights riots when it happened. But the October 31st article in the Times um, described it this way. The violence and chaos was unimaginable. Overnight, Brooklyn streets had turned into combat zones, pitting groups of Hasidic Jews against mostly black men, some holding longstanding grudges over what they saw as the Hasidic community receiving preferential treatment from the police and the city. Racial and anti-Semitic epithets filled the air alongside hurled rocks and bottles. Um, basically what the Times is doing here, as the um, and, and an editor at the Wall Street Journal, Elliot Kaufman, wrote... They're continuing their 30-year campaign of lies about the Crown Heights riots. Yankel Rosenbaum was killed by an anti-Semitic mob that killed him because he was able to be identified as a Jew. This was not a melee. This was not a clash pitting groups of Hasidic Jews against black men. They, They described this Crown Heights riots in the Times... Almost as if it was the Jets versus the Sharks. Now, that's not at all what happened. Um, And the reason I'm mentioning this, look, I'm all for calling out the abuse that goes on within the Hasidic community, the uh, problems at the many Hasidic yeshivas. I have spent more time on this than any mainstream talk show host in America. But, But if you look at what's happening in the world now, these threats that are being called into synagogues in New Jersey, uh, what's happening with Kanye West, what's happening with Kyrie Irving. You see what, what I hear from some of our callers, quite frankly. You see that anti-Semitism is alive and well. And why the New York Times in this climate would characterize the Crown Heights riots this way is bizarre and shameful. And uh, to the New York Times, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the practice of vaping. Kenneth, are you a vapor? I feel like you're in that age group. No, I am not. No, okay. Um, Well, two new studies show overlapping health risks of e-cigarettes and cigarettes. And these findings, which are from a very reputable publication, suggest that dual product use could be more harmful to health than smoking or vaping alone. This is very interesting because a lot of people do use va- uh, vaping and smoking e-cigs as a way to stop smoking tobacco cigarettes. And evidently, um, 
these two studies demonstrates that both cigarettes and e-cigarettes harm blood vessels and damage vascular health. People who vape or smoke um, are really putting their own health at risk. And the this study, or these two studies, I should say, published in um, Art, Arteriosclerosis, Thrombosis, and Vascular Biology, found that vaping and smoking can cause damages to the cells that line blood vessels. And this information really provides additional proof that smoking and vaping are both harmful to your health. And uh, vaping is not a healthy alternative to smoking. So don't vape. So vaping, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the state of Louisiana. No, it's not because all of that state's football fans insist upon continuing to say, who dat? It is because, according to a study by Skaharu, Scholaru, there you go, sorry. According to a study by Scholaru, Louisiana is one of the worst states for millennials to live based on affordability, social environment, employment, quality of life, health, personal finance, and safety. Look, the millennials get beat up all the time, and we beat up on them occasionally on this program. The millennials are a great group of people, by and large. Some of my best friends are millennials. I have a lot of family that are millennial. And um, I hate to see them so shunned by an entire state. And it appears that is basically what is happening in Louisiana. They came in dead last for overall score of the worst place for millennials to live. If you're a millennial, stay out of Louisiana. And I must announce the Wiener Schnitzel Bacon Ranch Chili Cheese Fries. There was a um, a study done um, in, uh, I don't remember which publication this is, but this was very reputable. And they found, they ranked French fries at all of the major fast food restaurants. In-N-Out Burger, Burger King, Wendy's. Arby's, all the major fries, and uh, all the major fries at all the major places, Popeye's, Checkers, Sonic, and sure enough, they found that the unhealthiest French fries in the entire country can be found at Schnitzel. The Bacon Ranch Chili Cheese Fries. These fries are so unhealthy, they should probably be illegal. If you ask someone what has a better chance of killing you, this or heroin, I think chances are pretty good they'd say these bacon ranch chili cheese fries. Okay, a serving of these. Now, I'm assuming someone's not going to eat this all by themselves. Probably they'll share them with somebody. But a serving of this, 1,320 calories, 80 grams of fat, 16 grams of saturated fat, 3,100 milligrams of of sodium, 119 grams of carbs. There is n- almost nothing to be said positive about these fries. They have some protein, but it is horrible. I mean, it's just horrible for you. They actually um, will not let you order these unless you give them the number of a cardiologist that they can call as soon as you finish the fries. But you leave it to Schnitzel 
to take the concept of chili cheese fries up a notch by adding a generous layer of ranch dressing and bacon. And uh, this large size is downright scary, earning the title of the most toxic fast food fries in the country. It has more calories than any of the frankfurters or the burgers on the menu and has nearly a day and a half worth of sodium. Do not eat this. I must also denounce the person or persons that uh, tried to assassinate Imran Khan. Imran Khan, the um, prime minister of, uh, well, the former prime minister in Pakistan, is uh, has been shot. Thankfully, he's expected to make a full recovery. But this is just horrible. Um, and world leaders around the country, irrespective of their politics, they are rushing to denounce the assassins as I am. But uh, this is just terrible. Uh, you know, President Biden gave a speech this week, and others have said the same thing, about democracy really being uh, under attack. Stuff like this is where democracy is under attack. When politicians are being shot by political adversaries, that's democracy under attack. Uh, So to the assassins, or would-be assassins, I do denounce you. I want to also denounce the person or persons that continuingly deface Max Rose's campaign signs. Now, I don't understand what anyone gains by um, defacing anyone's signs, but now a Max Rose campaign sign, he's a former congressman, he's running for Congress again. I'm not supporting him, by the way. I voted for his opponent, uh, my very good friend, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis, who's doing a great job, and she's going to win big, I hope. And um, they, somebody wrote in black ink, across a sign at his campaign headquarters, Soros. And uh, they're saying that this is the second anti-Semitic incident involving a Rose campaign sign. Um, I guess you can judge for yourself whether saying Soros is anti-Semitic or not. But um, Rose, who, even though I I have never voted for him, he's a nice enough guy. He has been a vocal fighter of domestic anti-Semitism and uh, it's just terrible to see what's happened to him. Previously, his campaign slides were vandalized with racial slurs. I believe a swastika at one point. And there's no reason, there's no place for any of that in politics. I must denounce Claire Margaret Meacham. This is a strong candidate for worst mother of the year. Um, Arizona mother... She left, I I can't even believe this, because I see the care that my wife goes to in looking after our 11-month-old, and it's amazing to me that someone could do this. Now, I get that Claire Margaret Meacham is far younger, and maybe she's a little immature herself, but there's no excuse for this. She left her five-month-old child home alone in the middle of the afternoon to go out drinking. So she's, oh, and by the way, she, of course, drove. So she was arrested for driving under the influence and for child abuse. I uh, 
feel pretty good about saying I'm not a guy that likes to take people away from their children or vice versa. I feel pretty comfortable saying this child would be better off growing up with just about anybody else as opposed to Claire Margaret Meacham. Um, And this is all caught on video. So with her doorbell camera, left home around 1244, abandoned her baby for over two hours before the cops caught up with her. You know, it's funny. My brother asked me, what age would you feel comfortable leaving Carmine alone for five minutes? I said, I don't know. I said, maybe five, five minutes, at least four. Um, I can't really imagine a need to leave him alone for, meaning leave the house for five minutes. He said, would you go up the corner to the deli or something? I said, no, I'd, I'd wait for him to wake up if he was asleep or I'd take him with me. And yet this woman had no qualms at all about leaving her two, her five-month-old alone. So she could go drinking. She said she left the child in the baby's crib, but didn't remember anything that happened after that. I'm betting it's because she was sloshed. Jeez. Claire Margaret Meacham, I do denounce you. And finally, I want to denounce uh, Booking.com. A pregnant traveler coming to New York um, booked a reservation on a hotel through Booking.com. She booked a room at the Queens County Inn and Suites in Long Island City, not far from LaGuardia, where she was going to catch her flight. And lo and behold, she got there, and they couldn't accommodate her. They couldn't honor her reservation. Now, why? Because the hotel had been turned into a homeless shelter, and all the rooms were given to homeless people. Now, we can have a discussion about what the appropriate way to deal with all these homeless people is and whether they should be given hotel rooms. But if you're selling someone a room that they've paid for, is it too much to ask that you reach out to them and say, excuse me, ma'am, we can't honor your reservation because that hotel is now a homeless shelter? Booking.com, I do denounce you. All right. uh, If you have thoughts, questions, comments about anybody I have denounced, you are welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Anonymous in about five minutes. Very much looking forward to talking with him. He's got a great book out called On the Count. We'll talk about that. And uh, we will uh, talk about a wide variety of things as well with him. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is sweater weather by the neighborhood. And uh, two days ago, I was very eager to play this song. And uh, for some reason, I, I can't remember why I was so eager to play it. But, you know, for those of you that are indie rock fans, you're welcome. You are welcome. All right. Um, in terms of our listenership, the listeners that I am proudest of are the ones that are listening to us in prison. And I mean that. Uh, one, because the folks that are listening in prison, I found people that have been to prison so much more interesting than the people that have not been to prison. Doesn't mean they're better people or worse. It means that uh, they're more interesting. You find someone at a cocktail party that says they have been to prison for a year, for five years, for 10 years, you plant yourself next to that person because that is the most interesting person you're going to run into at that party. Uh, But also because, um, you know, unlike um, a lot of people that can go online and watch whatever they want on YouTube, listen to any style podcast they can, radio is a very big medium in prison. And by the way, I love hearing from our listeners that are currently incarcerated. So if you want to email me, uh, whether you're in a city jail at like Rikers, a state prison, or a federal prison, email me. You could put me, request me through core links if you're in the federal system or whatever the state equivalent is, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But it's, to me, so much more interesting when someone who doesn't come from a criminal background ends up in prison. I've done a series of interviews with attorneys who found themselves getting jammed up and ended up in prison. Sometimes they believe they've gotten screwed. Sometimes they've made some mistakes. Sometimes they've made some mistakes and gotten screwed. So we've talked with John Kufos, Paul Manafort, Frank Angemi, Dom Crispino, Richard Luthman, Andrew McKenna, and others. And uh, that's why I was really eager to read the book On the Count, A Traveler's Guide to Prison. I have to tell you, This book is not only a uh, wonderful guide to preparing for federal, state, or local prison, uh, but it it is actually pretty humorous. Its author is Anonymous, and he's kind enough to join us now. Anonymous, how are you? Uh, Good morning, Frank. A pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, uh, and we are actually disguising your voice now. So if anyone tries to do the voice recognition with you, they'll be be disappointed and you will remain anonymous. Now, um, explain to folks, if you're to the extent that you're willing, how uh, did you end up in prison? Well, I practiced law. Well, that's uh, not a crime. well, no. It, well, to some people it might be, but I it, I I practiced law, and uh, for quite some time, and unfortunately met clients who were uh, involved in situations or did things that were quite frankly illegal, and in many instances I helped them legally to do what needed to be done, and unfortunately, uh, and I remember the day. When I did something with respect to checks and helped them out, but uh, I broke the law. I certainly did, and uh, and and it just went down a very slippery slope from there. And um, it, it got to a point where I was very unhappy with myself for what I did, and I turned myself in. 
And uh, how long did you end up uh, serving behind bars? The, the total time for everything, approximately eight years. Okay, that's some, uh, a real stretch of time. It um, was, yes, it was. Um, federal, state? Well, both. I, uh, well, first of all, I spent time in Rikers Island. Then I spent time in the federal system and then spent time in the state system and then was eventually released. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you write in the book that according to the statistics, and this may be jarring to some people, that it's possible that almost a third of Americans have been arrested and that a large percentage of those have served time in local, state, or federal prison. Now, I think a lot of people realize that we've we've got still, even after criminal justice reform, more people incarcerated than any country um, you know, on the planet. But a third, really? It's it's frightening. And what's what's more interesting is they will be and I don't say they may be they will be your next door neighbor. They will be someone you work with. They will some be with someone at a cocktail party, as you mentioned. And I, I will guarantee you, because I've experienced it, you will encounter people during the course of your day that have been incarcerated. And we're not talking about people that are axe murderers, rapists, molesters. That's a different uh, subject matter. We're talking about normal day-to-day citizens who, for whatever reasons, whether it be drugs, a bar fight, uh, some strange situation. Driving with a suspended license, you know, that's a big one. I met someone, if I could give you a brief example, he's out to dinner with his wife, this is the type of person that you would want to be your friend. If he sees a don't walk sign, he's waiting for the sign to say walk. So he's at the bar. Uh, he's at a restaurant with his wife. There's a bar attached to the restaurant. They're having a drink before they're, they're uh, assigned to a table. And somebody bumps into his wife. And the wife turns around. The husband said nothing. He didn't even see it. And start, this guy starts cursing out, disparaged the wife. Words are ensued then. The husband goes to deflect a punch to him, hits the guy. The guy falls down, hurts himself terribly, and the guy gets sentenced uh, sent to jail. Oh boy! Oh, I, I hate that's that. That's I mean, just one example. That's the kind of thing that you put in a movie that and nobody ever thinks actually happens nobody, in real this life. Is why a lot of people will say, "Oh, that'll never happen to me." Those people, they throw away the key, you know, give them the electric chair, and I'm I'm exaggerating. But that's why you can never say never, because it can happen. It does happen. And quite often than not, it will happen. Yeah, uh, that is precisely why I uh, enjoy talking to folks that have been in prison, especially folks that uh, aren't considered, you know, your typical, you don't meet the typical profile for having a criminal history, because I feel like everyone is so quick to take the approach, oh, lock them up, throw away the key. Uh, We don't care if they're mistreated. We don't care what happens to them that's bad until it's them or someone they know. And at the rate we're going, eventually it will be them or someone they know. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So tell me about your decision to write this book on the count. You could have written any number of books about the criminal justice system or your experience with it. Why write a traveler's guide to prison? Well, the, the title is humorous because I encountered people in the course of my incarceration who were in who had been to numerous prisons, 
federal, state, local. And they talk about it, and most of these, which is where the titles derive from, were people that were serving long periods of time, okay? I remember telling someone, you know, oh, how long are you going to be? Oh, about eight years. The guy spit on the ground and said, by the time my spit hits the ground, you'll be home. That's because that's how long he was going to be <laughs> incarcerated. Um, so the book was written, well, the, the title, because they talk about prison like, oh, I'd like to go to this prison. They have better food. The commissary's better over here. They're talking about it like it's if it's a hotel, the, the mobile travel guide or folders. And and that's where the title came from. And I'm, I, some of these people were not talking. Some of these people were nefarious. So, you know, they would talk about it. I was like, I just can't believe they're having these conversations. And I'm listening, and I would just, and all I did most of the time was just listen to people. They wanted to talk to people. They wanted someone to listen to them. And it wasn't about saying, oh, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. Or they just wanted somebody to talk to. But then when it got into these, the course of where they're going, where they want to go, if they could get transferred. So that's how the title came about. And I could have written about incarceration in various forms. But then I said, you know what? I'm going to write about what really happens. I'm tired of watching these TV shows, tired of seeing these movies, and I'm tired about people talking about prison and have no clue. You address – go ahead. That's what I did. You, you address in the book um, – why you chose to write this name, uh, write this book under a pseudonym. Why not just run it, write it under your real name? Uh, because of my family, my friends, people that respect me, people who I respect. And I thought it was better for everyone's purposes to just put it out there. Um, and and it wasn't to make money and to make a million dollars off of this and and something like that. It was just to get it off my chest. Um, but also maybe to help someone who is going to prison or who has a different, like you said, you know, uh, uh, throw away the key, lock them up. It's not that way, not in this country. And they real people really need to know about what goes on. And that dialogue doesn't exist. Yes, there's people that you have to throw away the key, you know, and, and, and really lock them up. But, you know, the majority of people that are in prison, believe it or not, are not bad, and I say that, and I'm sure people will cringe, are not bad people. They're not murderers. They're not rapists. They're not molesters. They're, like you said, driving with a suspended license. And and, and those are people that, that should read something like this. Um, there are consultants that are paid thousands and thousands of dollars to tell people what to do. They train them how to fight and how to give away your commissary money. I never had those problems. So half of the people that are taking that money and half of the people that give the money should realize, you know what? It's not like that. It's not what there's no cells in most of prisons. They're dormitory settings. They're not, you know, you may have a cell when you're first arrested, but but the reality is if you don't if you're not a murderer or rape, I refer to these people, that's not gonna happen to you. If you keep your 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 uh, wits about you and you know how to respect everyone, you'll you get through it. You'll be fine. You, you spend. What's the biggest mistake that most people make in terms of w- when they go to prison? What's something if uh, I'm going to prison for the first time as an inmate, you'd tell me, "Don't believe this, Frank. It's not like in the movies. It's like this." What What's the biggest misconception? 
the biggest misconception is that you're going to get raped, that you're going to get extorted, that you're going to have a fight in two minutes. Most of the time, if things bad happen to you, you caused it. I'm not saying you should be a church mouse, but you don't have to conduct yourself in a way that opens you up just like you would do in normal, normal life. If you're in a bar or you're in a restaurant and you bang into someone, you say, excuse me. You don't start cursing the person out. Well, that's the same thing in prison. You treat everybody with respect, and the same happens to you. Not to say there aren't people looking for trouble, you know? And then if you, you, you don't brag, so for example, you go to the commissary, you don't come back with, I'm exaggerating, $1,000 worth of food, and, and that's it. You get commissary, you share it with somebody. There are a lot of people that don't have a penny. They really, they really don't. And, and it's because they could be professionals, but their family abandoned them. They didn't want anything to do with them. Give them a meal, you know, give them, give them a sandwich, whatever you're buying from the commissary. Do something like that. That's not extortion. But yeah. you got to be careful because that then you could be taken advantage of. So you got to really be cautious and keep your eyes open. You do spend a little bit of time in the book uh, talking about the food in the state prison system. What can people expect in terms of the cuisine in the state prison system? Well, the cuisine leaves something to be desired. It's not bad. It's like fast food food. Um, I will tell you that in general, they're very hygienic. I don't know how they were years ago. Uh, but uh, now Rikers is a different story. I don't know why it's just so messed up there. They can't get it right, but it's dirty. It's filthy, you know, Um, but the state system is clean. The food is tasteful. You know, it's, it's really not bad. You get used to it, but it's no, listen, hospital food is, it's on par at times, you know, Uh, the federal system is a little better. Um, and, and the people that work in, in the, in the kitchens take pride in their work, including the cooks that work for the system. And then the inmates, they, they want the job because they could eat better by having an extra portion or something. Uh, so they keep it clean. They do keep it to an extent clean. We're talking with uh, anonymous. He's the author of the book on the count, a traveler's guide to prison and uh, you write in the book that uh, radio is a big part of the prison experience, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Before your show, one of the shows I would listen to was on another channel, which a lot of uh, inmates would listen to. And, uh, you know, would listen to anything, even during the day, would listen to any program they could. Because, you know, you go in the TV room, they show one channel, and then there's, and that's where arguments take place. If you want to talk about arguments, all you got to do is try to change the channel. And then you're doomed. So what you do is you have a radio, you listen to talk shows, you listen to whatever you can get. You know, some people listen to music. I always enjoyed listening to the news, talk shows, things like that. Not a big music fan. Uh, in my car, in, in prison, I would listen to the news. And uh, that's important because you have to keep in touch with what's going on in the real world because you are going to eventually be once again in the real world. One of the things that I found uh, with other lawyers that I know that have gone to prison is that because they had a lot of legal knowledge, they were very much in demand as um, uh, conversation mates with all of the other people in prison. 
folks would often ask them for help working on their appeal. They would ask their opinion of different uh, different aspects of their case. Given your legal knowledge and your legal background, did you find a lot of the people that you were incarcerated with, whether it was on a city level, a state level, or a federal level, were would try to tap into your legal knowledge? Well, they would ask. Well, first of all, I'll say lawyers are respected in prison, just uh, probably more so than in the real world. Yeah, I wouldn't surprise. Um, that would not surprise me. Absolutely, and of course, many of the people I encountered were quote innocent, you know. Um, but the majority of those that I encountered that said they were innocent had very long sentences, and that was that was one thing. The other people I, I you know, admitted, yeah, I did this. You know, I'm a doctor. I took from Medicare. I took from this. Uh, lawyers, the same thing. Dentists, a lot of dentists. I met a lot of dentists. That was weird. Um, but you know, those people would come to you and talk to you. I did not give legal advice. I didn't do criminal law, so I thought it would be more dangerous if I did. And I told, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to help them. It's like a you know, a, a, a dentist doing brain surgery. You, you can't do it. It's dangerous. And I would tell people that, listen, I don't know. And if you try to tell them that, you know, then you're going to get sucked into helping them. And it's not fair to them. One of the- I didn't want to do that. And first of all, oh, they watched me. If you had a piece of paper that was not yours or someone's rap sheet or someone's document or the name of something, then you would get in trouble. And I never did because – and they respected that. I was up front with them. I said, no, nah, we could talk, and they would sit, and I would talk and have conversations with them, and, and then they would be on their way. And I earned that respect because that's how I gave respect to them. But I was very honest with them in what I would not do. One of the things that um, I found interesting was a segment we did a couple of months ago about uh, finding your prison bid. And there had been an article where it talked about the importance of finding a bid or something to do to occupy your time in prison. And the article basically said that if you don't find something to occupy your time, whatever it is, uh, whether it's reading, whether it's um, you know writing, whether it's uh, playing baseball, weightlifting, whatever, then mm-hmm. you're going to essentially go crazy. And a lot of people ended up calling in, sharing their own experiences in prison with what they did at the time. What did you spend most of your time doing when you were incarcerated? Um, talking to people. I was not allowed to help anyone. They, As I said, they watched me. Uh, so I didn't do anything to that, uh, you know, with that sort. Um, I did a little work in the kitchen, but they had me in the office. I didn't cook. So I worked in the office. I did some clerical work, things like that. Um, and, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to put it on paper. So I sat and I wrote and I wrote. I made a daily log, a daily diary of everything went on that went on, the good and the bad, the real and the real. And and then eventually it, it went into book form, you know, and I could have probably written a major, major book and just put everything, the whole diary. But I thought that would be boring because you can't read eight years of, of life. It's just not going to happen, you know. Uh, so I wrote something that was succinct. And I interspersed, as you mentioned, with humor, because there is there are some funny things that happen. And 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 that's it. What advice would you give someone who has a friend or a family member that's going to prison? I I know a lot of the uh, advice in this book is geared towards the inmate or future inmate themselves. 
What would you mm-hmm. tell to someone whose brother, cousin, neighbor, friend, co- uh, uncle is heading to prison? Well, they do say, and it's true, that your friends, your relatives, your uh, your your family do the time with you. And even if they want nothing to do with you, they're still doing the time with you because they've chosen not to do anything with you. And I know I knew people that their families just completely abandoned them. Um and and that happened. I actually met someone whose brother abandoned him, mm. and the brother wound up being in the same prison with him on an unrelated, you know, charge. And that was the guy that didn't want to talk to his own brother. See, it's karma, as you say. Uh, karma counts for a lot in uh, in the criminal justice system and uh, and elsewhere. That's uh, that's wild. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's very interesting to um, you know you dedicate the book to in part. Your wife. I know a lot mm-hmm. of folks that end up going to prison and their wives, their husbands leave them uh, because mm-hmm. of the logistical difficulty of being married to someone in prison and because they're mm-hmm. embarrassed or upset or financial reasons. Your wife stayed with you while you were in prison? She did. She did. She certainly did. Very supportive. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Very supportive. That That is uh, – that's that's absolutely terrific. Hey, yeah. given your experiences, uh, what would you recommend in terms of changes that can be made to the rehabilitation system? So it's not, as you characterize it, a revolving door that has people coming in and out for a different set of crimes every every few years. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of problems. First of all, the mental health treatment in prison is horrendous. It's not the full necessarily of the individual professionals that are providing treatment. They just don't have the ability to have these long-term encounters. So, for example, there might be a psychiatrist or psychologist or social worker that meets with somebody, develops a relationship, and then that person either retires or is transferred or the inmate is transferred. Um, So that that bond is broken. And then that person goes on to the next one. And then they start to feel helpless. And then they're released. And the same thing happens on the outside where they just don't have that that constant monitoring. And then they can't get a job because no one wants to hire them. And it just thought, what else are they going to do? I mean, I met people that had to steal because they were starving. And I'm not saying this because you have to feel bad. The system is really, truly broken including what's going on with, with, with the no bail, you know, um, that has to be reworked. You have a revolving door. The judges don't have the authority to do things that they used to be able to. The prosecutors feel helpless because there's nothing they can do. The cops feel helpless because there's nothing they can do. And then you have these guys that are out the same day. And it just festers and it gets worse as time goes on with those individuals. We're not talking about, the again, the rapists, the murderers, the, the molesters, but they're not going to stop. It's going to happen over and over again. Overall, how would you characterize the interactions that you had with correction officers while you were incarcerated? The majority of them are wonderful, hardworking family people. However, they have a problem, too, because, number one, if they're too nice to the inmates, then the bad correction officers get on their case and they start abusing them. And I've, I've seen that happen. 
uh, where, you know, if, if, if you don't, I'm, and I'm, I am telling you, if you don't beat up somebody, then you're going to, there are correction officers that are bullies on other correction officers. So that fosters a system of you got to treat each inmate like they're garbage um, because the nice correction officer gets in trouble, doesn't get promoted, gets transferred, um, and, and that's notorious. Uh, but my interaction, is, if you're good with the CO and you're respectful with them and to them, they'll be nice to you, and they just don't bother you. But then there are other COs that are just looking for trouble, which I encountered, not personally, but I've witnessed COs just being nasty, rude, disgusting. They were drinkers. In the book, I wrote about one that was drunk mm. and actually drove into the front gate of the facility and destroyed the uh, and destroyed the front gate. Absolutely amazing. Uh, As he was going to work. You spent a lot of time talking about how your view of prison was shaped by your experience. Briefly, um, because we're just about out of time, but I hope you'll come back. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me how your your experience changed your view of Wall Street and what goes on on Wall Street. Well, Wall Street, and I guess that's why I should also remain anonymous, is probably the biggest con job going on today. They talk about people's 401s. They talk about the stock market. These numbers are so inflated, and the people that work there know it. Now, most of them are legitimate, but the system itself, again, just like other entities, fosters that money-making greed. And there were a lot of people that I did meet that were from Wall Street, Um but it, it's it's it, it, I don't know how to fix that. I have no I have absolutely Understood. no suggestions. That's a mess. That really is. All right. Um, anonymous. It has been a treat. We'll do this again soon. Please. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And, and uh, if, pe- if yes. people want to get the book, it's called On the Count, A Traveler's Guide to Prison. It's available uh, and uh, in paperback, 13 bucks. It's a bargain. Or you can get it, the digital version, if you have a Kindle. So it's a terrific book. On Amazon. On the count. You can get it on Amazon.com. All right. Uh, If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Scorpions. The Scorpions is a favorite of the one and only Ralph Macchio. That's right, Ralph Macchio, the star of the three Karate Kid films and now the television series. I haven't seen it, but it's very popular. Cobra Kai, which people just love that show. They go nuts for that show. 
Today is Ralph Macchio's birthday. You want to feel old? Think about this. Ralph Macchio is 61 years old. 61 years old. My goodness. So there you have it. Um, we're going to take your qu- calls in just a minute. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. And, um, hey, uh, by the way, something I forgot to do yesterday is we had a listener turn 100, and I had on my list uh, to wish her happy birthday. Her son reached out to me, and I want to wish a happy birthday to Marcy Sharp of Homedale, New Jersey, who turned 100 yesterday. And um, her son John wrote to me, and this sounds like my kind of woman. For her 95th birthday, you know where they celebrated it? The Irish Pub in Atlantic City. That is one of my favorite spots, a great spot for a 95th birthday. So happy birthday to you, Marcy Sharp. May you live many, many, many more years. I always get nervous when uh, our listeners start hitting triple digits because I don't want to lose any listeners. I need our listeners living as long as they possibly can. So a couple of things. Hopefully you're doing something fun this weekend. My, I have two siblings that are running the marathon. My sister Claudia and my brother Alexander are both running the marathon on Sunday. And my wife and I were going to join uh, other members of our family and cheer, cheer them on at a spot, you know, where they're going to be very visible. But we're having a difficult time getting a babysitter for Sunday and we don't really want to take him. It's going to be very difficult we're not going to be able to take a car really into Manhattan because of all the street closures and everything. So there's not going to be a great spot for him to sleep. So we don't feel like it's fair to drag him around for six hours, not being able to sleep. He's going to be miserable. And um, with no car, it's really not fair. So we're probably not going to be able to make it to the marathon on Sunday, but we will watch it on television. Um, My uh, brother and sister are doing this for charity. They're trying to raise money for, EB research, Uh, that is a horrible, horrible disease that uh, someone that our family is good friends with, John Hudson Dilgen, deals with and uh, suffers from. And if you want to make a donation, you can um, to Team Morano. Uh, I've just put a link to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash Morano fan. So thank you to everybody that has uh, donated. But... um, you know, I'm still fighting this cold, as you could hear. My wife and I are supposed to go to a dinner party Saturday night. And we're looking forward to it. we got a babysitter for that. The host of the dinner party, and I don't blame him, he, he has us all taking a COVID test that day. So make sure no one gets COVID at the dinner party. Fine. Happy to do it. But I, I did inform him about my cold. So we'll see if this cold gives him any pause for inviting us. And then I have a lot of wood to chop. I haven't chopped any wood uh, yesterday as I had intended to. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, you should listen to every show that I do. You should listen to all four hours of every show. However, if you're going to miss one show the whole year, miss Mondays. Because on Monday, I am going to be a zombie. Because I don't get a lot of sleep on a Monday show to begin with. However, this weekend, we are once again engaging in this idiotic, arcane, foolish, outdated, simplistic, anachronistic. Give me one more adjective. Um, superfluous. Tradition of Daylight Saving Time. And yes, it is Daylight Saving Time. It is not Daylight Savings Time. What does that mean? It means we are set... I can't even... If you were to explain this, I was thinking how I would explain this to my son, if he could understand time. Because it's going to disrupt his sleep cycle this weekend as much as everybody else's. If you were to explain this to someone for the first time, if you were to explain this to an alien from another planet... It makes no sense. All right, well, so you got standard time and you got daylight saving time. Well, oh, so standard time is standard? That's what they are for most of the year? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, It's daylight saving time for most of the year. It's just standard time for a few months. Well, why do we call it standard time? Well, I don't know. We just do. This is the most ridiculous tradition in the world. It makes no sense. More and more... um, Countries are doing away with it. Even Russia has done away with daylight saving time. You know, a lot of people like to characterize me as being pro-Russia. On this one, I am. Um, The, okay, understand the history here. The idea of something like daylight saving time was developed by Benjamin Franklin probably as a joke. We don't even know that he was serious about this because he, he he was interested in conserving candles in 1784, okay? It was probably a joke. It was popularized by William Willett, who had a very confusing plan for how to implement it. And really, and I'm not joking here, and you could look this up, golf magazines have written about this, the only reason the U.S. adopted this was so that Woodrow Wilson, an avid golf enthusiast, could get more hours on the green. The extra month of daylight saving time, see, even I'm saying it, has been a boondoggle for big golf. The the money that the golf industry is able to make from the extra daylight saving time month is astronomical. Also, so they said... This was due to preserve conserve coal during World War One. 
So far, there's no argument that this actually worked in terms of conserving energy. Um, the other fella who is considered with, uh, as one of the fathers of daylight saving time is New Zealand entomologist George Vernon Hudson. In 1895, the reason he was in favor of it was he could study insects longer during daylight hours. This is all real. This is all real. This is not shtick. So the only reason we have daylight saving time is because of one man's interest in insect culture and the selfishness of golfers. This is crazy. Daylight saving time was designed to give people more time in the sunlight and ostensibly to conserve energy. But study after study has proven we get little, if any, benefit from this. A a DOT study in the 1970s concluded that total electricity savings associated with daylight saving time amounted to about 1% in the spring and fall months. And that, of course, was offset by the increase in air conditioner use. More recent study in 2006 found similar results, which was noted by two academics who wrote a New York Times op-ed piece 15 years ago. Uh, Actually, uh, no, uh, 2008. What is that? 14 years ago. They argued that not only is there little scientific proof that it reduces energy consumption, it actually is more wasteful than not. And I, I don't think we can overstate this here. It's super annoying, which we already know. You know who else agrees? Chronobiologists, Bora Zivkovic wrote a fantastic essay in which he argues that daylight saving time is basically destroying our brains. Quote, whether or not daylight saving time saves energy is the least of the reasons why it's a bad idea. Much more important are the health effects of a sudden hour-long shift on our bodies and minds. The entire world is jet-lagged for several days after the changeover. In other words, if on March 9th there were an alien or if on um, what's, uh, what's Sunday, whatever, today's Thursday, if, if on November 8th aliens decided to take us over, don't you think they'd have an easier time? Traffic accidents up after the changeover. During the first week of daylight saving time, there's also a spike in heart attacks. Think about that. Daylight saving time can literally kill you. And we're doing it. There's a a fantastic essay in the uh, Washington Post this week by, um, who wrote this? Heather Turgeon and Julie Wright. Uh, They are, um, well, who they are is not important. What they have written is. Oh, okay. So this is their book. Generation Sleepless, Why Tweens and Teens Aren't Sleeping Enough and How We Can Help Them. Now, a lot of people, they do a great job explaining. So I think people are convinced that this constant switching back and forth, spring ahead, fall back, the most ridiculous thing in the world. I think most reasonable people understand this is absurd. So... The U.S. Senate, and we talked about this at the time, we talked about it in the spring, the U.S. Senate snuck through a bill 
to change this, to have permanent daylight saving time. They call it the Sunshine Protection Act. Um, That's still lingering in the House. These guys in this article, I'm going to link to it on um, Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, do a good job explaining why permanent daylight saving time is not a good idea. And back in March, I spoke with Keith Eichner about daylight saving time. He used to be a a weatherman at WABC. Now he's with a group called Save Standard Time. And he explained why permanent daylight saving time would be unwise. There have been studies done. There's probably too many studies out there. And certainly there's been a number of books on it. But I can tell you that uh, the only real benefit I, I see and what we see to daylight saving time is that people will get a chance to do a little more afternoon activities after work. And that's that's not a problem for me. But when they say in the winter, if we extend daylight saving time through the deep winter months, including November, December, January, February, and most of March, uh, our bodies are going to be out of alignment with the sun because now we're it, because now we are delaying the sunrise by an hour. And we're also, yes, we are delaying the sunset by an hour, but, as, but, but the benefit in the winter is just not as great as it's been advertised. Now even Mexico is mostly opting out of daylight saving time. Effective last weekend, the only exception is towns and cities that are on the U.S. border. They're still going to observe it. No one else is. So um, people get that the clock change is disruptive. Eternal daylight saving time is not the answer. And I think maybe the answer is permanent standard time. Daylight saving time is essentially mandated jet lag. Permanent daylight saving time leaves us perpetually out of sync with our internal clocks. And it denies, not me because I'm nocturnal anyway, it denies people the sun's rays when our brains and bodies need them most in the morning. So if they were to go through with this plan that the Senate has passed for permanent daylight saving time, then for the first time in 40 years, the United States would experience daylight saving time in winter. And the sun would rise unnaturally late, particularly in the northwestern part of every time zone. 9 a.m. in parts of Texas, 9.15 in Indiana, 9.45 in Michigan. Think about that. 9.45 a.m. sunrise in Michigan. Students wouldn't see the sun until well into their school day. Now, remember, we had permanent daylight saving time in 1974, and this is what happened. People found it so painful, they abandoned it after one year. This would be bad for children. Now, I'm all for later school start times in general, but do we really want children commuting in the dark? This is just lunacy. Lunacy. I can't believe we still do this. I'll tell you, if Lee Zeldin wanted to lock up the um, governor's race or Kathy Hochul, they would put out a statement this weekend saying, you know what, when I'm governor, we will do away with participating in daylight saving time and we will move to permanent standard time. Because states have the option to do this. They can't opt for permanent daylight saving time. They can opt for permanent standard time. That's the law. And Arizona doesn't uh, honor daylight saving time. They stay right where they are. Same thing in Maryland. There's a very competitive uh, race for governor in Maryland. Dan Cox, the Republican, he, he's been struggling. It looks like, uh, you know, there's currently a Republican governor in Maryland, Larry Hogan. If 
Dan Cox wanted to keep Maryland as a red state, at least as far as the governor's mansion goes, he should come out and say, boom, permanent standard time. That's it. I'm telling you. This is um, an issue that I've worked for for a long time. They say up to 366 lives a year could be saved just by abolishing this silly back and forth. Um, it's It makes us stupider. It makes us less productive. The sleepiness of daylight saving time results in an acute spike in what they call cyber loafing. That's according to a a report in the Journal of Applied Psychology. Don't you waste enough time already during the workday? Do you really need to be clicking around on listicles and cat videos on YouTube? But you know who loves daylight saving time? The French fry industry. Those guys that made those horrible French fries that I was telling you before, they are over the moon. A founder of the Daylight Saving Coalition once testified in Congress that fast food restaurants do sell more French fries in in daylight saving time. Who else besides the golf industry and the French fry industry? Big charcoal. The barbecue grill and charcoal industry say they gain $200 million in sales with an extra month of daylight saving time. Um, this makes no sense. It needs to end. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Hey. Sorry, uh, I'm at work. Uh, no, I'm I'm working this weekend. Been doing it for years. I dread this night uh, every year because my computer goes from two back to one. Oh. And then I got to do it all over again. And it, it just blows your mind. Well, I uh, I can imagine, and well, now I uh, I got to think that the big losers this weekend are the people that are going to have to hear an extra hour of Curtis. <laughs> I don't listen to him on the weekends. I probably should. I only listen to you Monday through uh, you know Sunday night through uh, through tonight. No, that, yeah, that's okay. You're 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 good. You're 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 all set. You're good. But uh, uh, yeah, I just forgot to share that with you. Just to actually live it is uh, you know it's, it blows your mind after you do oh, that hour over. I've done it. And um, I, I've commuted during daylight saving time when they set the clocks ahead and when they set the clocks back. It totally screws you up. It's the worst. I've been on the bus while you lose the extra hour. It's just, it's just awful. What line of work are you in? Um, pharmacy. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's got to be uh, very challenging. Something tells me um, you're going to have to dole out a lot more drugs this weekend because uh, folks are going <sighs> to... Need some help getting over these uh, the, the adjustment to the new time. Hey, Joe, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Good luck this weekend if you are working during the time change. Hey, thank you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We're going to do $1,000 Minute in a few minutes, and then uh, Debbie Schlussel will be here. Not only do I want to talk movies, I want to get her, situ- her take on this Kyrie Irving situation. 800-848-9222. Uh, Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. <clears throat> Yeah, how you doing? When did you feel better? By the way, if you have that cold, you should take um, a, a two baking, um, you know, baking soda with a teaspoon with water. 
try it out, mix it, and then you'll. I think you'll feel a lot better. You know, I'm almost. I'm almost uh, fully recovered. It's working its way out of me. You know, like it started in the back of my throat, then it worked its way to my nose, and I could feel it's almost out of me. You know, it's like oh, it great. sounds worse than it is. Uh, I'm by tomorrow. I have a feeling I'm going to be in back in fighting form. You should feel better. So the other guy who spoke about the prison system. And I, you know, throughout throughout the last 30, 40 years, I'm like 45. I've been watching movies like Hurricane Carter. The boxer was was locked up for 30 years, and Deshaun Shake. We were brought up with like, we we, we know you have all these all these true stories. When you go to the movies, guys were locked up for no reason, and the justice system um, failed. So I think you know, it's it's it's, it's a catch 22. What we see, what we what we have now, a lot of looting and, and a lot of crime. But you have to look at the la- all the years what so many people were sitting for no reason, and then they, they get out, they find out they didn't do the crime. And it's not one. It's many, many, and many. So I think the justice system for many years has failed us. Uh, you know, so, you know, we see it. We've been, they made movies about it. So, you know, there's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very ironic what's going on now, but I'm not saying it's good. It's very sad, but we have to find a middle, a middle way. Well, yeah, you Simon, know, so. uh, thank you. I, and I'm not for, um, oh, you know, having violent criminals roaming the streets. Let me be very clear. And, you know, I recognize that some people need to be removed from society. And I'm all for removing them. But uh, there's no reason for the uh, prison experience to be oppressive. You know, it would be nice if uh, you could come out of prison, let's say, with some skills, right? And uh, uh, skills that would help you get a job when you get out of prison and so that you wouldn't have to resort back to a, a life of crime. And if you think about the amount of money that uh, taxpayers spend to incarcerate people, you have to think that, um, you know, could that money be better spent elsewhere? And that's one of the things that I, I give Donald Trump the most credit for is what he did on criminal justice was very bold and very courageous, especially for a uh, a Republican whose base is very hardline anti-crime. Uh, and I give a lot of the credit for pushing that to Jared Kushner, whose father went to prison. And um, that First Step Act was a rare bipartisan victory where you had people on the left like Cory Booker, um, working with folks on the right, like Bernard Carrick and Jared Kushner. And I think Trump gets a, should get a lot of credit for that. And that's something that I don't think he ever properly did a victory lap on. For all the things that Trump wants credit for, um, whether he, he has whether he should get credit or not, he doesn't really take credit for the First Step Act. And I think he should because a lot of people got out of prison because of that First Step Act. And it would be great to see more red states move in that direction as well, in my opinion. All right, 800-848-9222. Mike is in Queens. Hello, Mike. Hey, what about a prison without walls? Uh, I grew up on an island in the Philippines. Uh, it's called Palawan, and there's a prison on it uh, called Iwahig, I-W-A-H-I-G. It was built during the time uh, the United States ran the Philippines. So the prisoners are there. There's a hardcore area for, like, the uh, hardcore prisoners, and then they have an living out area, they call it, where there's farms. It's about 100,000 acres when it was originally uh, envisioned. It was built during the time of William Howard Taft when he was governor general. It still exists to this day. 
And the prisoners who have basically met a certain period of uh, uh, reforming and, and all, you know, they, they've changed their ways or they're nonviolent, regardless of their conviction, they live on the farm side of it outside and they live with their families. So you have kids, you know, the, the, the parents uh, of these prisoners, they can live on the prison farm with them. But the area around the farm literally has no walls. But you wouldn't want to go into the jungle because there's malaria. You go in the rivers, there's saltwater crocodiles, and, uh, you know, it's not exactly the, the safest place to try and swim away from. It's an island. Well, that's but interesting, Mike. Uh, island. Yeah, th- that is not something that I'm familiar with, but I find it uh, intriguing. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I appreciate Look that. Give, g- yeah, give me the name again. I will, actually. I-W-A-H-I-G-E-Y-H-I-G is how they pronounce it. The Wahig Prison and Penal Farm. I love it. There's a bunch of them that Taft set up in the Philippines. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, Taft, people don't know. Taft was the military governor of the Philippines prior to becoming president. And then, of course, he was the only president to later go on to serve as a Supreme Court justice. A, um, you know, a wonderful book. You know, I'm I'm a Theodore Roosevelt uh, fanatic and uh, I'm, I, I don't think there's been a more interesting person in history than than Theodore Roosevelt. And a, it, his, you know, he could be very petty at times. And I think a lot of that manifested itself in his relationship with Taft. But there is just a wonderful book on their relationship and each of their lives, meaning Taft and Theodore Roosevelt. And they did patch things up after they... Um, had a falling out and ran against one another in 1912, they did become friends again towards the end of their lives. And that was his best friend. Uh, That was, uh, you know, Roosevelt was somebody that Taft really looked up to. And there's a wonderful book about it. It's called The Bully Pulpit. Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. It's by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I've read a bunch of Doris Kearns Goodwin's books. This is by far my favorite. Obviously, I'm more interested in the subject than I was in some of her other books. It's a phenomenal book, tracing the dynamic history between Taft, Roosevelt, and the progressive era. And this is when progressive meant progressive, not, you know, what it means today. Um, Debbie Schlussel is going to join us in a minute. Why don't we give you an opportunity to win some money first? Do you want to try your hand at answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds? Then, by all means, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you can do that, you'll play the $1,000 Minute. Seventh caller, try your hand, 10 trivia questions, 60 seconds, boom, $1,000. Simple as that. Go ahead and call right now. We'll talk to you straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Frank 
Here comes the weekend. All right. Uh, I can't think of anybody I'd rather start the weekend with than Debbie Schlussel, except maybe for $1,000. And you can earn that $1,000 by uh, answering a few trivia questions. As you'll hear in a moment, uh, this is an, a daily contest that we do where we give somebody an opportunity to try and win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. It's something we call The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murillo. Let us say hello to Dave in Maryland. Hello, Dave. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Yes, uh, very proud to have you as a listener from WCBM land. So I guess that means you're a new listener to the show, Dave. Uh, yes, I am. All right, how do you like it so far? Oh, it's terrific. It, it breaks up the monotony of driving to work alone. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Well, well, hopefully this $1,000 can can help you out a bit more. Uh, you've heard this contest before, I guess. Yes, I have. All right, if you're ready, let's get started. I've I've got one question. You've sure. already asked me three questions. Does that count? Uh, no, because the timer didn't start. Okay, but if you're ready, okay. let's let's officially get started. Uh, but I give you credit in the humor department, uh, Dave. Okay, Wh- what is the date of New Year's Day? Uh, January first. What animal does beef come from? Cows. What professional sport did O.J. Simpson play? Football. According to Forbes, what South African is the world's richest man? South African, which is the world's richest man. Hmm. Can I pass? Uh, Unfortunately not. He's been in the news a lot lately. Owns a car company, a space company. Oh, Elon Musk. What state was Bill Clinton once the governor of? Arkansas. Oh. In spring, do we uh, set the clocks ahead or set them back? Spring forward. What filmmaker directed The Shining and A Clockwork Orange? The Shining and The Clockwork Orange. Filmmaker, uh, Spielberg. Uh, I'm sorry. It was Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. Well yeah. done, though. You got up to question seven. Dave, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, talk to Kenneth, and um, he'll give you a consolation prize. If you're lucky, maybe it'll be an autographed headshot of him or something. Thank you, Dave. Uh, appreciate you listening and uh, being a good sport. All right. Uh, it is always a treat to be able to talk to the one and only Debbie Schlussel. She's an attorney. She is a blogger. She's a conservative commentator. She was doing all those things before it was cool. And... We like to take advantage of her expertise as a film critic because not only does she have a lot of insight into films, but she has a very entertaining way of making points about those films. Debbie, it has been way too long. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me back. All right. I have to ask you about uh, the situation involving Kyrie Irving. Obviously, uh, you've heard all about this. He tweeted uh, basically an endorsement of a documentary that uh, included some anti-Semitic tropes. And uh, he was asked about this in a press conference. Here he was on the Yes Network being asked about the film. To follow up on the promotion of the movie and the book. Can you please stop calling it a promotion? What am I promoting? Put it out on your platform. But I'm promoting it? 
Do you see me doing? Do you see Fine. me in front putting of the, it out there? The people title? are going to say that you are. Yeah, I put promoting. it out there just like you put things out there, right? Yeah, but I. Okay. I, it's not you put stuff. things out there for a living, right? Right, but my Great. stuff is Great. not. So let's move on. He uh, did not apologize initially. With, he did give $500,000 to the Anti-Defamation League. The Nets were not exactly satisfied with the non-apology. They indicated he was going to be suspended. And then, as I understand it, uh, just a few hours ago, he did put out a statement on social media indicating he was sorry. Uh, you are Jewish, Debbie, and always on the lookout for anti-Semitism. What, what, give me your take on this whole situation involving Kyrie Irving. Well, first of all, you don't have to be on the lookout for anti-Semitism because there's plenty of it, and it's it's right in my face. It's in your face. Um, And I think it's interesting because Roseanne, remember when Roseanne tweeted out something that uh, was considered racial about Valerie Jarrett, the uh, Barack Obama advisor? She was done. Her show was going to be canceled or she was going to have to sell her interest in it, which she ended up doing. Um, Many channels and networks stopped carrying reruns of the show because they didn't want her to make any money. Some of them are now playing them again. She was branded a racist for life, um, and she cannot get arrested by network television. She's fired completely. Um, But when you are black, you can get away with a lot of things for a while. I mean, she, listen, she was fired immediately. I think it was within that day after she did this in the middle of the night, she was gone from ABC and so on. Um, Kyrie Irving has had uh, several days to uh, continue with this. I'm not promoting it. When you put something out, that whole exchange with I think his name is Fridell, the reporter, that whole exchange with him about he's not promoting it, he absolutely was promoting it. I mean, this whole that whole linguistic uh, thing was a, a distinction without a difference. When you put stuff out there as, hey, you should watch this documentary about the Jews and how they control the world um, and how they're responsible for slavery, which we aren't, by the way, <laughs> a false nation of Islam uh, baloney, when you put that out there, you are saying this is valid. I am promoting it. That's what he did. I don't I don't need the 500,000 to the ADL, which is, by the way, now they're finally against anti-Semitism. They haven't been for many years. I'm glad they're finally doing something now. But, you know, I don't think that money is changes anything. This is what he believes in. This is what he supports. I don't need his apology. He should be banned from the NBA and his whole career should be over. Because if Roseanne, if they can happen to Roseanne and her apologies, which she made many, um, and they weren't qualified, like his, his so-called apology is very much qualified. He was interviewed uh, and he, he said, I, I can't be anti-Semitic because I know where I come from. That sounds to me like the black Hebrew claim that, oh, blacks are the real Jews. And the Jews aren't the Jews. Like Kanye West has been saying, you know, it's always been kosher to be anti-Semitic. It's just that if you verbalized it, you were uh, sent to the fringe and that was it. Now it's mainstream and none of these people are really getting punished. So he, you know, his career is going to continue. He's suspended for five games. He will not feel it. He's a multi, multi, multi millionaire. It's not a big deal for him. 
and he's never really going to apologize. And frankly, I don't need his apology. He doesn't mean it. Um, and like I said, he should have the same punishment that Roseanne has. But Roseanne was white, and uh, you are not allowed to say those things about blacks, but you are allowed to say them about Jews, and not much will happen. But um, there, there are white people that are also able to make a comeback from anti-Semitism. I mean, the best, I mean, I'm sure where there are many examples if you were to look, but the best example that I can think of is uh, is Mel Gibson. I mean, Mel Gibson uh, did go on to direct, uh, even after he was exposed as being an anti-Semite, he did go on to direct films that were taken very seriously by the Academy, including one uh, that was nominated for an Academy Award. I, I think his record on his views of uh, the Jewish people are, are well documented. So, I mean, is it necessarily a black versus white thing? Well, you know what? You are right about that. But that was many years ago when, you know, anti-Semitism, like I said, could not really be verbalized because if it did, then the person would be put on the fringes. And Mel Gibson did suffer for many years where he wasn't cast in, in movies uh, in the lead when he had been for many, many years. And he wasn't allowed to direct things in that movie that he was nominated for, which actually was a really good movie. Yeah, no, it He was. did a great job um, about the, the pacifist in World War II who ended up saving many, many American soldiers' lives. Um, at, um, I think it was at Iwo Jima. Um, That was a great movie, but he was, for many years, he he suffered. Um, And I think uh, now the, for, it depends on what group you're from and what group you say things about. I think if he would have said something about black people, I don't think he would have ever made a comeback, frankly. And and I don't know that Roseanne is ever going to make a comeback. I, by the way, Roseanne's a personal friend of mine. The only thing she has going is some kind of comedy special in January um, in Texas that's going to be on on uh, Fox News Nation, I think. And and that's pretty much it. She has become a pariah completely. Period. She cannot get arrested. And I don't think she'll ever be allowed back like uh, Mel Gibson was. And uh, I do think there is a tremendous double standard because um, he's going to be back in five games. That's nothing to him. He's not going to feel it. So, you know, well, it's, it's and, not much of a punishment. Uh, and uh, I, I'm imagining that uh, almost everything that you just said about the Kyrie Irving situation would apply just as well to Kanye West and the various brands and corporations that are severing themselves from him. Well, look at how long it took for any of these companies to say anything, including Adidas, you know, founded by Adolf Dassler, a member of the SS, the Gestapo. Um, It it took them quite a while to get rid of him. And there was a lot of outcry from Jewish groups until they finally dumped him. Um, And he, by the way, is not apologizing. He won't apologize. And if you look, the scary thing to me is how many people still support everything he's saying. And listen, I believe in free speech that um, all these companies that dumped him are, are private companies or, or are, you know, in the in the private sector. Um, but he has right now, if you look, he was not banned from Twitter. I've been banned from Twitter for responding to porn star Tracy Lords, who called me an idiot and swore at me. And all I did was point out that she was a porn star, and I've been banned 
from Twitter for life. I don't believe Elon, Elon Musk will uh, let me back either. Um, he let Kanye back in, what was it, less than 24 hours? So did Mark Zuckerberg. Kanye is back on Instagram. Um, and I, by the way, was disciplined on Instagram when I posted a Halloween costume of Kanye as Hitler, which I was not endorsing. I was saying this is who this guy is. He's back on all of these things. Um, you know, if he were white and he had done these things, I think he would have been banned like Donald Trump was banned. Um, and I don't know that Donald Trump actually will be back on Twitter, uh, contrary to what Elon Musk says and so on. Um, so I just think there is a double standard. The swiftness and the length and the severity of the punishment just isn't there. And it won't be for Kyrie Irving. It's really not there for Kanye. He has more followers right now on, on either Instagram or, or Twitter, um, not combined, than there are Jews in the entire world. Wow. Wow. Uh, that is wild. I didn't know that. Hey, we could uh, discuss the issue of uh, free speech and social media for an hour, and uh, maybe one day we will. In fact, you got to let me know next time you're in New York, because I'd love to have you in studio for a whole four hours, Debbie, and uh, pick your brain on a bunch of stuff. But there are a lot of movies that uh, I know you want to weigh in on, and uh, our audience is eager, even with the hour less of uh, of time that they're going to have this weekend, they're eager to uh, check out for this weekend. Uh, speaking of anti-Semitism, let me ask you about this film, Armageddon Time. What is this? All right. So this is a movie that's supposed to be a picture of typical Jewish American life in the New York uh, area in the 1980s. And I hated this movie. It is, by the way, Frank, I just got to add, add one thing. I just got my uh, aunt, my results from 23andMe of my DNA. And I always thought I was going to be 100% Jewish. I'm only 99%, but 0.4% is Italian. Ah, wonderful. So We're probably related. A, yeah, now I am an officially Jew-talian, <laughs> um, or as I like to say, Paisanoid. Um, <laughs> Welcome aboard. I, you, you, come over, you have to come over for spaghetti and matzo balls one of these days. Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. So I didn't like this movie because I, growing up in the 80s, not in the the New York area, but, you know, a typical, I think, American Jewish life in the 80s was not a life like this. This was a strife-filled life. The parents are racist, which I think is interesting. Jews died. This is another thing. Jews died for black people. Schwerner and Goodman died in the civil rights movement. They they were murdered, you know, um, in the, because they stood up for black civil rights. And I don't think this has ever recognized a lot of this stuff, the contributions of Jews by the black community. In this movie, the Jews are racist against this, this black kid, that their son, who is a bad kid and a discipline problem, befriends. Um, and by the way, they're constantly, they see Reagan on TV because it's, it's 1979 and 19, or 1980, and he's running for president. And they say, they, they started him every time he's on TV. My family liked Reagan. And you know what? Uh, before um, Donald Trump, Reagan was the president, and I think it, he may have surpassed Trump, who got a significant number of Jewish votes. So this movie just didn't capture that. Plus, there's a character in the movie that is Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, 
And it's just ridiculous. What? This movie is propaganda. Is it supposed to be a drama or a comedy? It's supposed to be a drama with some, I guess you would call it a dramedy because mm-hmm. there's some moments of funniness. But mostly it's just the, the father is abusive. The grandparents are racist. By the way, none of these people are played by Jewish actors. Whenever you have somebody else played by an actor, they have to be exactly the nationality or there's a whole protest. We're not protesting. And I think the movie should be protested because it's anti-Republican propaganda. It's gratuitously anti-Trump when it takes place before Trump was even a big deal. It's um, anti-Semitic. I just hated this movie. And it's a pointless movie. It's supposed to be a slice of life. And it's just very dark. And depressing. All right, so we will uh, we'll put you as uh, undecided on the fence about this picture, <laughs> uh, Armageddon time. What else is new out this week? Um, so there are a number of new movies. One of them is called Causeway, and that's on Apple TV Plus, and uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence as a veteran who's come home, and she was involved in a bomb attack over in uh, either Afghanistan or Iraq. And she's trying to get her bearings about her. Um, This movie was a little bit depressing and a little bit dark also. But I appreciated that it showed, you know, what veterans are still going through who've come back. Although I think this movie takes place earlier than present time. Um, there are, there is, uh, I'm trying to think what else did I see this week? So I I know, I think in the old days you used to give, um, instead of stars or thumbs, you used to rate movies on a scale of how many EDM means you would give it. Did you used to do that? (laughs) Well, I, I only gave those to really bad movies. I usually rated on a scale of Reagan's and Marx's. Um, you know, it, it makes it a little bit more interesting. There's. Right. So for Causeway, how many Reagans or Marxes would you give it? I mean, I think I would give it like half a half a Reagan. I don't know if I would pay to go see this movie. It's in theaters and on Apple TV. I don't know that I would pay for this. I'll tell you what I would pay for um, that is actually not in theaters, but it's on Netflix. And that is The Good Nurse. And that actually came out last week. But I, it's it's the number one movie right now on Netflix, and I happen to think it's really good. Um, the Good Nurse, it stars Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, and it's a true story, but they made it into quite a thriller um, where there is this woman nurse at this hospital. She is uh, very sick. She's trying to stay on this job until her medical – she just started it until her medical kicks in, her insurance kicks in. And suddenly this male nurse comes from another hospital, and suddenly patients start dying, and she starts wondering what's going on, and so do the police. And it's a it's a very, very thrilling movie. Hmm. I enjoyed this movie. So that's The and, Good Nurse. That's on Netflix. Yeah. All yes, right, and that, I would give this, I guess, like two Reagans. Two Reagans. One and a half Reagans. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. Hey, uh, all right. Um, also, um, I saw uh, this picture. I thought it was pretty weak. Uh, the last Halloween film. I mean, I thought it was weak for, for what it was. I, I thought it was entertaining enough if you're a horror movie um, fan. Halloween ends with Jamie Lee Curtis. What was your take on it? Well, yeah, I agree with you. I thought not enough Mike Myers. 
not scary right. enough. Right. And then they have this new guy that yeah. is uh, who looks like a young Tom Berenger. <laughs> and I didn't really care for that whole storyline. It's almost as if they're justifying what happened because he was bullied. I just it, it was it was like a bad Mean Girls to me. It just wasn't. Yeah. No, I, I I think that's a a good description. Um, the Rock is out with a new film, uh, Black Adam. Is this worth seeing? So I, it, this is number one at the box office for the last, I think, two weeks. And I did not care for this. I think it's too long. It's very slow. I kept looking at my phone to see what time it is. That's the test. And as a superhero movie, he's not really kind of a superhero. He's sort of like a frenemy. He's sort of like a, he he's sort of a little bit like a mess, and then maybe he's a superhero in the end. I did not like the storyline where basically evil white Europeans are menacing and terrorizing the um, Middle Easterners. Um, you know, please, I, I I'm just tired of this anti-American storyline where. Mm. White people are bad, and that was the storyline of this movie. So it just was boring, too political, and I've seen so many other superhero movies that are better, but I'm so bored with these superhero movies where they're so lazy. They don't want to make a good plot. They don't want to make something you could follow and understand. This movie is a must. Uh, finally, Ticket to Paradise, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, two people that everybody loves. Uh, what was your take on this? So I did not care for this movie either. It's another movie where white Americans, white Westerners are evil. Julia Roberts and George Clooney have a daughter who just graduated from law school. She's got her whole life ahead of her. And she visits uh, the Bali and she meets this seaweed farmer, a local native seaweed farmer, and she wants to marry him. And they want to stop her because, you know, he's a minority who is poor and lives on an island. And they want her to marry some rich guy and have a successful career in America. So they go to break up the wedding. It's a very predictable color by numbers movie. It's supposed to be a comedy. It's not funny. Uh, these two people, Julia Roberts and George Clooney, are miserable on, in the movie, and I feel like they're playing themselves. And it's not entertaining. It's it's kind of stressful and annoying, to be honest. All right. So uh, the film to watch this weekend is The Good Nurse. And if you have a, have an interest in seeing multiple films, maybe Causeway. The film to avoid at all costs is Armageddon Time. Everything else is kind of okay, leaning in the must-skip direction. Yeah, and, you know, we're coming close to the holidays, and usually by now there should be a lot of good movies. I just haven't seen too many good films recently, and I look for that trend, too. Every year it seems to get worse, and the whole COVID thing seems to have sped that up, unfortunately. Mm, interesting. Debbie, it is uh, always uh, always a treat to talk with you. You may be banned from Twitter, but uh, you're not banned from our program. It's always a treat to have you. Well, thank you. Great to be back. Thank you. Uh, Debbie Schlussel, you can uh, check out her website. You, there's a bunch of ways to get there, but if you go to DebbieDoesPolitics.com, that is one way to get there. Hey, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame next and give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's the 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. My thanks to Andy B for this terrific theme song. If you want to stay in touch via email, uh, you can do so over the weekend by uh, emailing me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. I'm trying to tweet more in support of Elon Musk's efforts. Um, I'm eager to see what happens with this new policy of uh, making people pay for their verified status, $8 a month. Um, I am currently verified, so I'm not sure if I'm going to pay for that. But uh, Now is your opportunity to be heard. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds, uh, 800-848-9222, as we embark on... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike! Good morning, Frank. Think of the positive. Changing the clocks twice a year gives you two additional segment topics. Thank you for always great radio. Jimmy. There's a black radical communist named Sonny Carson. He was involved in the anti-Jewish riots at Crown Heights. He was involved in the anti-Korean uh, fruit stand, you know, boycotts. He says he's not anti-Semitic. He's anti-white. He was also defended. They said he's not anti-Semitic. E. Frank. Yes, if Lieutenant Governor and Acting Governor Kathy Hochul gets elected on Tuesday, will she continue looking at Toronto, Ontario from her building, like Curtis Lewis says? Russ. Vaccine mandates ended November 1st in New York City. It's highly coincidental that Kyrie Irving is being punished for citing a documentary. A telltale clue is that many more people are going to watch this documentary. Free speech is okay as long as Debbie agrees with it. Jews say many racist things. Debbie. John. Yeah, Frank, uh, that uh, tree stump that your neighbor gave you, throw it away because it's dangerous to use with a chainsaw. Pat. How's your aunt with the, um, who makes the egg salad? How's her COVID? And did you get pizza? Oh, yeah, we did get pizza today. We didn't talk about that. Uh, I thought the pizza was pretty good. I had it. And uh, my Aunt Camille, she's hanging in there. She's uh, still having a tough time. Jeff. I love your show. It's great. I see it twice more even. I love my mishpokas. And finally, Anthony. Joe Biden is like the devil snake in the Garden of Eden. He promises all things will be built back better if we follow him. Instead, he brings inflation, crime, open borders, and all things wretched. Thank you, Anthony. Have a great weekend, everybody. Frank Moreno, good day. 
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.